0: What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to The Pomp Podcast, simply the best podcast out there. Let's kick this thing off. Dave Collum is a professor of chemistry at Cornell University. He's a popular staple of FinTwit and writes one of the best annual summaries at the end of each year. In this conversation, we discuss the COVID-19 crisis, the economic crisis, the role of the Federal Reserve, the 2020 presidential race, his Jeffrey Epstein theory, gold and Bitcoin, and how Dave would invest his time and money as a young person today. I really enjoyed this conversation, and I think you will too. Don't forget, I write a daily letter to over 50,000 investors about business technology and finance. I break down complex topics into easy to understand language while sharing opinions on various aspects of each industry, you can subscribe at pompletter.com. Again, pompletter.com or go into the description and you can click the link there. All right, let's get into this episode with Dave. Anthony Pompliano is a partner at Morgan Creek Digital. All opinions expressed by Pomp or his guests on this podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Morgan Creek Digital or Morgan Creek Capital Management. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, guys, bang, bang, I've got Dave here. Uh, thanks for doing this. Yeah, my pleasure. Um, you are very well known on Twitter. You are uh, the king of hot takes, uh, which end up not being so hot and actually end up being more accurate than not. Uh, but for those that don't know you, uh, what is your background? How do you get to be a professor?
1: at Cornell well it's a little twisted so as a kid I was uh not a wonderful student I had bursts of activity that were good but I uh you know sort of sex drugs rock and roll a lot of sports stuff like that um I would not have gotten into Cornell if it were not for the fact that my grandfather controlled every penny into the university best I can tell he is a vice chancellor of the board of regents and the national alumni president so you know that kind of gets you in the door um majored in bio was going to go to a vet school the med school and then decide last minute to do chemistry so took my bio degree went to columbia went became a chemist um thought i was going to flunk out got pretty close actually because they made me take some graduate level physics course and i didn't have calculus shit like that and uh and then got lucky in my PhD project, Miracle on Ice, nineteen eighty, beating the Russians. Right, so I got my PhD in about two and a half years, and no postdoc, and got an unsolicited interview from Cornell to come back. And uh, so, so I went on a series of interview trips and came back at the ripe old age of twenty-five. So even though I'm not that old, I'm sixty-five. I've been here for for forty-one years and uh, forty years, and uh, and. Uh, and then uh, and then how do i get to it? you and i talk and that's a, a ridiculous question um somehow i i started paying attention to markets as an aging boomer and started to realize that they're more screwed up than i thought they were supposed to be so i was a wild bull in the tech period and then i i'd start doing valuation analyses which weren't hard because they had no value and uh and then uh and then became a bear and once you go bearish it's very hard to come back it's a it's a it's a kind of a one-way street because once you start looking at the world as a through the sort of the darkness um and so i i I tried to hedge inflation got into energy uh the inflation never showed up energy did really well and eventually took back a chunk of it but uh Got into gold at you know 290 down to 270. I, I can't even remember what got me into gold. And then uh so I had about three decades which things worked sort of brilliantly for an uneducated fool. And then uh and then the last decade, I just I've existed in it in complete disbelief that that it's a rational market. And so I've been on the sidelines. Um I've done okay, but uh but I didn't catch the wave. I think uh, I really sincerely someone asked in in your question on Twitter, you know, why is he still bearish? I it, I think the markets have literally been screwed up for 10 years. And and I think in in 09 they got they reached about fair value and you go, well, you know, no they were dirt cheap No, they'd fallen countless tens of thousands of feet, but they weren't cheap. I had dinner with um what a, another one of those? How did you get here, Dave? Moments. I had dinner with Mark Spitznagel, and he said, "Yeah, they were cheap. They were below fair value for about a week." Uh, Grantham said the same thing. So, so I was not alone, and I just didn't believe that they would bounce and then not plummet. I thought we were going to do a total repeat of, say, the '30s. And what I didn't see coming, and I've never met anyone who did, was a Federal Reserve that would uh, that would do have sex with sheep and in, in plain sight to, to save the system no matter what the cost. And so for the last 10 years, the federal reserve, uh, Kevin Warsh actually said, it, it's unfortunate they treated every single day as though it we're an emergency. I think that was a pretty good way of putting it. So, so I just, I missed the last 10 years, you know, gold's done well lately. And so I, I, you know, if I don't screw up, I'll retire in tremendous comfort. Um, but, uh, but I, I can't buy something. I, I don't there's traders everywhere now. I can't buy something that if it goes bad, I, I would I wouldn't be able to forgive myself. That that that's the filter I put everything through. If if i make this decision and it goes bad, um was was it was it still a good decision? And if the answer is yes, then I'm fine buying. And so buying into these markets, if it had gone bad on me, I wouldn't have forgiven myself. So so I have people hammering me saying, you know, you're just an idiot. You know, you're just wrong when you're going to admit it. I think I'm still right, actually. I just think it's taken longer than I could have imagined because it's amazing what, you know, $30 trillion will do.
0: Yeah. One of the things that's very interesting to me is uh, you have a day job that has nothing to do with finance, at least on the surface, uh, teaching organic chemistry. What are the overlaps that you see between that world of kind of very science-driven um, and, and very kind of, uh, I think, different than mainstream thinking uh, and the financial markets? Like, like, why do you have an interest in both of those two things? Uh,
1: I, I think the most important thing that I took away, so when I was I was always contrarian, right? I was just always contrarian, and and you know sometimes being contrarian just make, does make you wrong. But I am um, when I when I got to Cornell at the ripe old age of twenty five, having really smashed some PhD records, I realized I had to move on. I moved into a field that everyone said was dead. I had so many people say it was dead, right? We know what that's called. That's called the bottom, right? And I kept saying, you know, no one's been in this field for like 20 years. Do you think it's possible? Maybe there are some important questions now to, to answer. And so I went into it and I, I I barely survived tenure. I mean, maybe it was easy, but, um, but it sure as hell was risky as hell for me. I mean, it was just so contrarian. And it took probably 15 years to get going. But I ended up going into a field called organolithium chemistry, which turns out to be as complicated as any field of wet chemistry, if there's chemists listening, I, I think they would agree. And it's very, and I had a very famous chemist saying, you'll never figure this stuff out. And I said, I think I can. And he says, you know, we went back and forth. And, and, and I did, in my opinion, I did. Um, it's still an empty field in some sense. The, there's users everywhere. So it's a profoundly used field, but the people willing to sort of dig in and wrestle with the Python um, to understand the stuff that they, they barely exist. And so, uh, and so in that sense, I'm not a leader because people didn't follow me. Um, but for 41 years, I survived doing this, getting funding from NIH, even though national institutes of health, even though, People would say, how do you connect that with health? I go, well, I not only can, but I'm getting phenomenal scores. I mean, the, the, the study sections can see the health. Re- I do collaborations with pharma. The, the health relatedness is very real. Um, during that 30 to 40 years of doing this particular area of chemistry, I, uh, I found that in essentially every project we ever did, someone was profoundly wrong. And so we'd study something that people say, well, we kind of know how that works. And we'd say, we go, this is not even close. And, and when you looked at the answer, you go, makes total sense. It's just not what anyone thought. And that has been going on for four decades. And I can't even get it right myself. And so I will start a project and I'll think, oh, well, I've been doing this for, now I now know what's going to happen. And then it won't happen. And so, uh, so what it taught me, the most important thing is it taught me that Um, that experts with massive resumes can, can all be wrong. And I thought of something all about two years ago, I'm not going to go into it, but I had an idea about two years that I swear to God, you could ask a thousand PhD chemists, what's the answer? And they would all agree without fail, all agree what the answer is. And I'm sitting in a seminar one day and all of a sudden just clicked. I said, no, that's, Wrong, not just not quite right. It's wrong. It's backwards. And then I went and asked about two hundred chemists the question, and without even a chalkboard, I could convince them they were wrong. And without, with one exception, they all got it wrong. And I, it, on this list were Nobel Prize winners and stuff. And so it's one of those things where, if you have faith that the experts can be just dead wrong, being a contrarian just isn't that so what, what was it? What was the idea? Well, the idea for if any chemists are listening, um, the idea that um, when you do a reaction of three particles, this is real basic stuff: A and B and C. And you bring them together to make a single molecule ABC. Uh, what they say is, is that you never do that in a single step. You never bring three particles together simultaneously. Do you have any science background? What's your science? Any science? That's what background? I read on the internet. Okay, okay, so you're an expert like me then. Um and you never bring them together simultaneously. You always bring two together and then one more. And I you can get a thousand chemists to agree with that. And you say, why? And the answer is always something about the probability of them colliding simultaneously. And that turns out in scientific terms is to be an entropy problem. It says the anytime they say probable and I'd clarify, I say entropy, you mean they go, Yeah. Turns out the entropy is more favorable. For the, for the simultaneous one, it's what's called enthalpy, which is heat. But, and it's, it's a boring problem. What makes it interesting is that thousands upon thousands upon thousands of chemists would all get it wrong. It's one of these things that no one would even question. And so I question things like I found myself, I, I gave a talk to 1,000 money managers on the Roth IRA about, I don't know, eight years ago. And I presented an argument that the Roth IRA was mathematically flawed, and that no one should ever use it. And I stood up there, and it was in Vegas. It wasn't the seminar with, the, wasn't a meeting with Cullen Roach, who I'm a big fan of, and I watched his seminar. Finally, your interview with him the other day. Um, but but I, I gave the talk, and I said it was a half hour talk, and I said if I'm wrong, someone out there tell me, and no one no one was able to correct it. And and why a chemist sitting in Ithaca, New York, is finding a gigantic pothole in the Roth IRA is beyond me. I don't know why.
0: It's fascinating. Um, let's talk about uh, the virus. So the virus. this thing has decimated the world, uh, both on the healthcare side and the economic side. I want to start on the health side first. You obviously have a background in science. Uh, you've been watching this play out. Uh, you know on Twitter and in the headlines, et cetera, what's your general sense of as to what's happened um, and kind of where we are with the virus uh, right now
1: well, I've spent the entire pandemic thinking in two weeks i'll know it's just been in two weeks i'll know so i first it first caught you know there's always something coming out of the Chinese wet markets right there's all those guys will eat anything that wiggles right and uh and so what caught my attention is the minute they shut down Wuhan, I said, oh, my God, we just shattered the supply chains, right? So I started reaching out to friends. I got, I got an email from uh, Einhorn, who's been so generous for this time, and Stephen Roach, who's been so generous for this time. And we started sort of swapping war stories, trying to figure it out. What, what did it mean? But I was convinced that you can't shut down a major region of China without destroying the global supply chain. Now, it hasn't been as bad as I thought. I thought we, but, but, but I, I ran into tons of people who said, We're not getting the chips we need. We're not getting this. We're not getting that. There could be a delayed reaction. There's even theories out there, they said they shut everything down so no one would be demanding the supplies. Right, what an interesting thesis that is, right? And I'll entertain any idea until I shoot it down. So in any event, um, the guy who I think got it right was again, one of your former interviewees, Jim Bianco. He was on it fast and furious. And so we're swapping a lot of emails, mostly One Direction, mostly him just telling me stuff and me going, I, I agree. Um, and, uh, and I think it's been devastating. And it reminds me, it's it's like uh, it's like someone put a stick of dynamite in a turkey and blew it up. And then someone else came along and said, I put it back together now, right? It doesn't work that way. So I think we destroyed the global economy in a very big way. And I think that the people who think we're just going to reassemble it uh, are just, are, 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 Dreaming. Now I could be wrong, but I it, it certainly is a strong opinion. Bianco said one day on Twitter, and he got crap for it, he said, you know, 90% recovery is a disaster. And people said, What are you greedy? What are you? And and I, I had to chime in and I said 90% recovery means 10% drop in GDP. That's a disaster. And so uh And so, yeah, so I think I think we're going to have lots of missing jobs that don't ever come back. You can't run a restaurant at 50 percent capacity. You can't run a movie theater if everyone has to watch with masks on. And so uh, the only way we come back is everyone just says, screw it. And the world, which, by the way, I think they've collectively are trying to do. Right. One of the questions I've been trying to understand is why about two weeks ago, all of a sudden, with no change in the biomedical story, all of a sudden it just became a. Now we're going to open up. And I'm going, what was that? Right. There was no, you know, all clear signal that was put out there.
0: Do you think it had to do with just, it literally got warmer in various areas. So like literally it's
1: just springtime hit. Maybe it could also be, remember Arab spring, remember we caused Arab spring. Some Tunisian guy lit himself on fire just one flammable Tunisian <laughs> and, and that triggered. And so it could be something like the, uh, that blonde, relatively hot um, uh, uh, hairstylist who said, I'm not closing. And it could be as hell yeah, you know, the the shot at Lex- Lexington and Concord, you know, who knows what? But it just changed. It just changed. And and all of a sudden people stopped wearing masks, except in logical places. So you see them at the store, but not walking down the street. And so there's just this sea change that occurred. It was it was like people were just ready. There were a lot of people who were critical, saying that's really selfish to do that. And I'm going. These people don't know how they're going to feed their kids. There's nothing, nothing selfish about that. And so uh, it's really just sit there with a paycheck and criticize people who are, who, who live. And we know, what was the stat? Something like 40% of the people couldn't put $400 together if they had to, right? Those people now can't can't put 50 cents together.
0: Well, I think so you're bringing up a couple of issues, right? So the first is uh, one of the things that, I'm personally interested in your opinion, right, is you spend all day looking at science and you come from a mindset where uh, there's a hypothesis, you test it and it's either correct or it's not. and You move on, you kind of rinse and repeat that process over and over again. What we saw with the virus was uh, a number of people who, they put forth these models that... Uh, I'll call them hypothesis, right, because no one really knew what was going to happen, but they were were trying to predict how bad could this be. And you'd see models that said, you know, worst case, base case, and best case type situations. Uh, What I think now has transpired is we've got, you know, a month or two months of data uh, in the lockdown, and people are saying, wait a second, you're telling me that, you know, an order of magnitude less people Have actually died than you originally said, right? And and there's almost like this shock and awe factor of people were anchored on such big numbers, you know, millions of Americans dying. And now all of a sudden they see the numbers. And by the way, there's people who have died, right? There's a lot of people who have died, actually. It's just nearly as much. And it looks actually like a small number compared to what the original predictions were. And do you think that like the psychology of that plays into people just being like, look, open the damn, you know,
1: economy up? Yeah, you lied to us, I think is another way of putting it. Um, I don't know if this is true yet. So one of the things I've, I will be watching for and have been thinking about is, is uh, if the shutdown really did heroic things to stop the spread, well, first and foremost, you're going to have to explain why other regions of the world are not a killing field, right? So we're not, I heard Mexico has three times as many cases, you know, BFD, it's still not a big number. And uh and you know, China supposedly also stopped having cases, but everyone said, Oh, China's just a bunch of liars, you know, we can write them off. And then all of a sudden you go, but maybe they're not, right? Maybe the damn thing has stopped. Maybe it ran its course in China. And and so now, um, so so the other problem we have is, and I, I've been talking to a lot of biochemists. One of my former students is a biochemist at Harvard now, and he uh and, and I spent hours on the phone chatting with him about the, how the virus works and how it you know, gets the RNA into the cells and how the incubation. This guy's glued to it. And he was pretty nervous about the whole thing. So I, I can't say that the, uh, that the serious biochemists weren't nervous about it. Um, but I was waiting for the numbers to unequivocally, unambiguously exceed anything normal. So when it was at 5,000 or 10,000, we're still sub flu numbers. Now I think we're above flu numbers, but there's a, there's a, there's a problem with the data being so bad. So the data is bad at two levels. First of all, what's the comorbidity at this point in time, some 87 year old guy crashes his motorcycle. They're calling it COVID. Um, when some guy dies of a heart attack because he had COVID, is it really a COVID death if he had gotten simply a mild case of the flu, he would have died? Uh, and so, so you don't know how to count. Second of all, I've, I've heard there's over 90 different tests. Now, I got tested because I've been feeling crummy for a while. And I said, ah, why not? And my son had. And so we said, why not? We went and got tested and they did it all wrong. They did it all wrong. They, you know, if you do the the nasal tests, they're supposed to jam it back there to the point where you feel like an Egyptian mummy in the making, right? And there's a name for when they pull the brains out through your nose. And and they just swabbed it around her nose and that was it. I go, that's not gonna test for anything. But 90 different tests, you know, you got Elizabeth Holmes probably running tests out there. Um, And so it's gonna be garbage data. Right, they're all testing for different markers. Uh, You can have corona flavored RNA in there, and it's testing positive. And who is it? Four base pairs, five base pairs, and and and. That my my former student said. You know, they don't yet have a good one. And I'm going really. We're doing a lot of statistical analysis. Then you got that guy uh Neil Ferguson who's out there bullshitting to to uh, to 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 oppress his 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 38-year-old girlfriend. But it's even worse than that. It turns out she's a sort of a as I understand it, a professional activist. So he she's out there, you know, with all these big causes. All of a sudden you go, oh Neil, Neil wants serious action out of this chick now. And so uh and so his his numbers that apparently got entire nations to change their policy was because he wanted to get laid, right? I mean, how I many times has that destroyed a nation, by the way?
0: Well, so what you're talking about is Neil Ferguson from Imperial College basically created a model that literally said, you know, in the United States, there's going to be like, I don't know, 5 million people were going to die. I mean, some ridiculously high number. And then it comes out that now he has uh, corrected it. (coughs) correct the number or, or the model that now shows lower numbers, but then it came out that he wasn't social distancing. He was uh, basically having an affair with a woman and, and there's all these kind of implications to it. But what it ultimately brings us to is this idea of bad data, right? And so from uh, pretty early on, I was uh, in the camp of, hey, this is real, right? I, I, you'll love this. I called my father who's, uh, who's in his 60s and I said, hey man, I don't want to have the debate, right? All I'm going to tell you is wash your hands a little bit more, don't go shaking people's hands, stay inside a little bit more, and uh, take some vitamin C and kind of just just chill out, right? You don't, you don't got to believe that this is going to kill you, but just kind of chill out and, and take it at least a little bit seriously. And before I even finished, he literally hit me with, I take a multivitamin, I'll be fine.
1: Right is kind of <laughs> <laughs> were his pants hiked up to his chest, and was he bitching about the government? is the question right? yeah, of
0: course, right and, <laughs> uh, and so you know it, it was kind of one of these things where when you look at it, you say, the data has always been wrong. So I, I took it seriously, but also you can say at the same time, the data has been wrong and it's because the financial incentives are off, right? All of a sudden, if I'm, if I'm at a hospital and you say to me, hey, if you just check this box and say this person died of COVID, whether you know that to be true or not, whether they tested positive or not, you're going to get $8,000, $10,000. Or hey, if you put them on a ventilator, they get, you know, I think it's tens of thousands of dollars. You literally are using financial incentives from the government to change the statistics and it completely throws off how we can analyze what's actually
1: happening. Well, so to give credit where credit is due, I think the people early on, like Chris Martinson, who was documenting it daily, <coughs> excuse me, I think he's doing a great job. And I think he's doing a great service. And and he was obviously very, very nervous about this virus. And I don't think he was wrong because it was an unknown. It's sort of like when it's 1999 and you're worried about your tech stocks and they're not crashing, doesn't mean you're not right. And so what Chris was picking up on was huge risk. And there's no question there was huge risk. So I think the people who dismiss risk eventually become some Darwinian smudge mark on the road. So, so I'm a big believer that when you see risk, so uh, so. I, I, I had this funny situation where I was I was doing podcasts and the markets were going up and the virus is getting crazier. And I'm going, this isn't making sense to me. So the markets were just crazy. And I'm going, you know, they talk about, you know, you you smart guy, money manager guys, you know, how everything's forward looking. I go, these guys couldn't find their ass with their hands, right? These guys are stupid. This we've got a global pandemic, we got a supply chain problem, and they're not selling anything. So I did a podcast with uh, jelly donut now I, I did a ton but the funny thing about this one was is that this is the one where it got famous right away because the first podcast was einhorn because he used the jelly donut model you know economically and he got einhorn to do it now i 've been trying to get Einhorn to do other podcasts like real vision he won't do it he says I feel bad saying no Dave um, so in any event so he got einhorn so he got him on the map and so I did the jelly donut podcast and and I talked about the things I gotten right in the past the tech stocks and buying gold and all this stuff and then the other thing i did that was probably the best thing i ever wrote was a 2002 email to a friend at goldman and i said that there was a subprime crisis coming and it was about a five-page email. And I said that 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 General Electric was taking on risk and General Motors was taking on risk and the banks were taking on risk and that the subprime uh, mortgages were picking up, which, by the way, go all the way back to around 98, 99. It really started early. And that I thought the banking system was going to collapse. I said so. And I, my the, the only mistake I made in the damn thing was I thought JP Morgan was going to go down. And that was... Precisely wrong, right, but but I called it, and then, and then at one point, uh, I think it was a Kadrosky, right one of the great early early bloggers said something in in tweet one night, I said, "You know if you're early, you're wrong, and I sent him my two thousand and two write up, I said, Was I wrong and And by his model i was I was wrong, and he said, "Now you're splendidly correct on that one, so it was a big call, you could be early. Um, so in any event, so I did talk about this at Jelly Donut, and this was something like February, probably 15th or something. And I said, "I, I this is I said I, I see a minimum 50% correction in these markets. That's that's without even the virus getting involved, right? This is just based on valuation. And uh, and then Business Insider picked up on it, and they wrote, you know, one of these, you know. <laughs> I actually made a joke about this once, came true, where they said, you know, Ivy League professor who called the subprime crash calls a 50% correction. It was just, it was the cheesy thing that we all see, right? On the Yahoo homepage or something, right? And Business Insider did this. And, and I'll, it took like the day that the podcast got uploaded, the thing started tanking down. And so I'm going, oh, that's. The funniest goddamn thing I've ever seen here. Um, so, but then the Fed has rallied it back. But now I think this rally is going to fail. I'm not a technical guy, so I hate to use terms like that because they they pervade markets. Right? Everyone uses technical language to talk about stuff that we should be talking about using valuation language. When was the last time someone made some reference to something being cheap, not relative to something else, but just flat out cheap? Show me something that's show me something that's not a great risk of losing all its revenue that's got a PE of eight that's got no debt right these are hard to find and yeah well, be think- there but they're going to get cheaper at some point in my opinion you said it
0: earlier, right? And I think this was one of the things that cracked me up is we saw the airline stocks, for example, go from, you know, I think it was United went from like 80 bucks to $20. And I literally wrote something and I said, just because it fell from 80 to 20 doesn't mean that it's cheap. It actually, you have to remember that, you know, they did, I think it was like uh, $8 billion in revenue last year and the market cap was now five and a half. And everyone was like, look, it's, you know, trading below the, uh, the revenue last year. And I said, yeah, but they're not
1: doing eight and a half billion dollars revenue this year. Or this year, or the following year, or the following year. Right, it's it's just awful. I've been writing about share buybacks since I went back and checked. I've been writing about share buybacks from at least 2012, and I went back and looked at all the different things. I said I've been railing on them, but this year I went bananas on Twitter because I could see as they were as they were cranking up the burr, right, the burr. Um, to bail everyone out. I said, they're going to bail out the goddamn airlines. And these guys have taken every penny that they have and put it towards these pump and dump buyback schemes. And that's all they are. People all oh, return capital to the, the shareholders. They don't do that. They don't return capital. To buy up pizza with that capital. Try to do that with that capital, right? They take assets on their balance sheet that have a return and buy shares, which have a return. And if you've got, if you've got a company that, that's got a 10% return and you, you take assets, that have a 5% return, it's a good buy. But if your assets are returning five and your company's like the, on the triple Q and you got a, you got a PE of, of one, a PE of 100, excuse me, 90 is actually the number, um, you're returning 1% on your company. You, and so, so share buybacks have turned into a, a, a reach for yield. So by, by Powell and these idiots um, driving yields so low, it, it meant that assets on the balance sheet served no purpose. Back in the 70s and 80s, companies loved assets on the balance sheet because they, would, they could get fantastic rates, right? And so, so Powell Paul, Greenspan, the whole enchilada, they took out that model. So what it did is a bad incentive. The incentive for the companies was to minimize the cash on their balance sheet. And to maximize the debt, which they could get dirt cheap and buy their shares and pump them up and get their options. The whole thing has been a complete Madoff scheme. Now, I understand the theory of share buybacks and how they can be good. It's just no one was doing them right. And so at some point, yeah, I understand the theory of sex, but we're talking about a, a prostitute. We're talking about brothels. We're talking, right,
0: it's just the wrong What would you change about the way that they're done to basically get the positive aspects of share buybacks captured and get rid of all of the negative aspects around the debt and things like that? Well, I'm a free market
1: guy. So engineering anything doesn't sit right with me. Um, I'd hang the CEOs from the nearest bridge by their ankles like Mussolini. But a couple of things. Most of them left. (laughs) Most of them already left. if, If the system wasn't so deeply corrupted, then what i would do is i would never let a ceo be chairman of the board i wouldn't let him load up the board with his friends i wouldn't let them i wouldn't let them swap chair positions with each other um i would if you really want an incentive program, here here's a, a scheme no one's ever come up with this one before i said you you, you have a cattle call for ceo you would get big company you get all sorts of people applying right You say, you're gonna run the company for three years for free. If you do a real good job according to these valid metrics, not share price, not this, you know, know, cash flow, you know, growth in, 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 in the business. You guys know how to measure these things. Then you get the job and we'll pay you this, right? And so you give them some, five years, I don't know, but you let them work for five years for free as an assistant CEO. And then, or, or you say, or you hire a real CEO and you say, here's your shares, you get shares in this company. You can't cash them in, you can't, you, you can't hedge, right? You write right account saying no hedging, you can't cash them for 10 or 15 years. Build us a goddamn company that you know 15 years from now will pay you handsomely for your efforts, right? And that's what shareholders should do. Now, I one time had a chat with Bogle the argument I made to Bogle was I said, you know, indexing means that there's no adult supervision. So, in the old days when IBM had a defined uh, benefits plan, IBM had a vested interest of their, their, the guys managing that plan to stick their noses into the GE and say, Jack Welch, you're cooking the books, right? But instead, we went to this defined contribution plan, which I get. But now there's no adult supervision. Now you got the ETFs and you got, the, you got the, 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 the indexing and stuff. And so there's no person that isn't, you know, maybe the head of CalPERS or something, maybe cares, to, to stick their noses and say, you crooks shouldn't be giving the CEO so much goddamn money and so many options. We're going to sell your shares. The only guy like that is Buffett. Right? You got a, the occasional Buffett who might say to a, seed, to a company, I'm selling my shares publicly if you don't change. Right? He could do it. He could be an activist shareholder for the good of a company. I'm not a Buffett fan either, although I respect his ability to make money like you No know, Tomorrow. A, a lot of people
0: forget he started out as somewhat of an activist investor.
1: Yeah. No, no. He, he, build, he builds wealth in the sense that he helped put in good management. He otherwise accumulates wealth. Um, yeah. So so I guess part of this is,
0: um, what do you think about the buy, uh, the bailouts, right? So what, I, I think I threw a grenade into uh, into Twitter one day when I said, uh, you want to stop all the bailout nonsense, literally just create a rule that if you're the CEO of a company that gets bailed out, you can't operate a publicly traded company
1: for 10 years. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. Right? Something like that. You know, the problem is though, I also don't like the idea of getting in there. And so I, I think use the budget model where if, if you're going to lend money to companies, you charge them a punitive rate. And and, and so here's a great example. So Carnival Cruise Lines and the various cruise lines are, are the epitome of the ballot disaster. Now, I don't think the ballots have been as bad as they, they looked like they were going to be, but they're not done yet. So I think the real serious graft is being hidden. and Because you know they say, well, look at how much money we gave to Joe Sixpack, they're gonna get $12,000. I heard this is smart, they are gonna get $12,000 a piece. And there's this many of them, and you do the math, you go, that's not $6 trillion, dude. Somewhere out there, lurking is a lot of giveaways. So what happened with Carnival? Well, Carnival, uh, besides being a serial buybacker on debt and all the crap they do, they're domiciled in the Caymans and so they don't pay tax. They pay something like 0.8% taxes. When one of their cruise ships hits the rocks, we pay the cost to go yank them off the rocks and save them and stuff. So it's just a disaster. The average pay, supposedly, I haven't documented this, but it seems like a credible source. The average pay because they're going to the third world and hiring these guys who can barely speak English to, 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 to work on the ship, the average pay is something like two fifty an hour and they have to sign up for you know 14 hour days six day weeks it's just and if one of them gets sick they drop them in a port and leave them that's it so carnival is an insidious program now what happened well so they obviously they they were going to be excluded from the bailouts but something happened so so jpo um um announces his bailout program and what and ha- what was happening at the time was a bunch of hedge funds had gotten together as a consortium and said, we will lend you money at 15%. Now, these guys are swashbuckling highway robbers too, but that's the going rate, right, right? That's what happens when you, that's the budget model. Um, and then all of a sudden what happened is j shows up and, and, and all of a sudden they're left at the altar. Now, I don't have a lot of sympathy for the hedgies who are that good, you know, the singers who can really, you know, rape and pillage pretty well. Um, but but that's intervening in the market forces. And and all of a sudden, next thing they know, Carnival's not interested. And all of a sudden, next thing they know, they're getting money out of the banks at way, way lower interest rates. So did they bail out Carnival directly? I, I, I don't know, but certainly the banks all of a sudden found it in their goodwill to Give carnival kind of lots of loans. But I think this is part of the problem, right? And, and, and a lot
0: of people hear the airlines are going to go bankrupt, right? And they think airlines are going to stop flying. They think that the cruise ships are going to stop. All these companies are going to you know, basically like literally evaporate, all the jobs go away, et cetera. And, and all I continue to hammer on, it sounds like you're in the same bucket here, is there's an equity and a debt market. That market is made when the buyer and the seller in the market agree on price. The problem is that the airlines, the Carnival Cruises, all these people think that their company's worth something that it's not, and they're running to the government because the government's the idiot in the room. The government, literally, if you look at the airline bailouts, like 66% of the money that they gave in the bailout is a grant.
1: I don't know a single- Let me get my brain around this. You're saying the government's dumb money. I have to think about that. Um, yeah, you know, a great example of this, by the way, I, I've been thinking about this one and I realized, let's go back to one that really looked like carnage for job loss. That's Arthur Anderson, right? So they, they get obliterated, but then you sit back and you put your feet up and you ponder and you realize is that the demand for accountants did not drop at all. There were, I, I, what, probably 30,000 accountants in that facility? I don't know, I'm just guessing. Um, and 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 the business that they were doing dissipated other firms and those guys went off and worked at the other firms. And, and so uh, my brother was arguing what a criminal thing it was to blow Arthur Anderson out of the water. And I said, they'd committed so many crimes Ned. you got to do it. You got to blow them out of the water. Now, if, if Carnival gets blown out of the water, almost literally, um, someone will buy up the ships and run the operation better and quit, you know, taking on debt to do buybacks and stuff like that. Well, But the thing is just the the investors, right? your point of somebody was going to give them debt
0: at 15% and then all of a sudden the government swoops in, right, in all of these different markets. And if you look at you know United, Southwest, all these companies, they're literally two-thirds of the money that they were given was a grant. The government got nothing in return.
1: Right. That's a giveaway. That, and that's a giveaway to people who I would like to hang from the neck until dead. And and that's the problem I'm having with it. Now another rule here. Remember when Greece went down the tubes, right? So so this drives me crazy. So you, I can remember years ago when Bush was president, or something we sent thirty billion dollars to Brazil to bail out Brazil, and it clicked. You know, I was a total neophyte, as opposed to now a fractional neophyte. Um, and I thought, you know, that money's never going to get to Brazil. That's going straight to the banks, and so we're given. Brazil, the money, which by the way, won't make it and it'll be given to our banks. And so we're just bailing out the idiots who loan Brazil money, right? Just like, you know, 100 year, you know, Argentinian bonds, right? How, how long did that, they take to default? What, about six months? <clears throat> so, um, so these bailouts are always just to bail out the big money. And, and I'm a capitalist. So this is not, uh, this is not Bernie Sanders ranting about the big guys. I'm a big fan of the big guys who create wealth. I, we got to have big guys. I want someone who can create incredible wealth. I do get a little nervous about the monopolies. I get, they do get big, but usually monopoly is protected by government. So if you find a big monopoly, if you dig under the surface, you'll find that they are using the the, the machinery of government to maintain their 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 vice grip. And so. Uh, so in any event, I, I, yeah, I think it's awful that, 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 that these guys are getting bailed out. And so, so Greece, Greece goes down the tubes, right? Greece should have done what Iceland did. So Iceland said, screw you, we're not paying. We admit that we let fishermen become bankers. And that wasn't the smartest move. We're not paying. And I remember the European bankers were upset about this. But, <clears throat> but it was the right thing to do. They just defaulted. Greece didn't default. Greece handed over all its assets. You go, why? Why would, a, why would Greece hand over all its assets? And the answer is because one or two or a small handful of key people in Greece who have the authority to make the call got bribed. Now, I don't know if they got bribed, but I'm sitting there and I'm the head of Greece that's going down the tubes and stuff like that. And someone comes along and says, by the way, some guy from the BIS or something, Says you sign off here, we'll give you ten million in the Cayman or what's that, Monseca Freca, the the the, the 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 Panama Papers account, and and you hand over all the goods, you'll come out fine, and we know you're a dirt ball, so you'll do it, or or we'll whack you if you don't, right? We'll do a Clinton approach, um, and 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 so so they just hand it over, right? The Greek people didn't hand it over, the the Greek. Authorities handed it over. When Germany attacked Czechoslovakia in 1939, the BIS got a request from Czechoslovakia to transfer all the Czech gold to Germany. And they did it. The BIS said the papers were in order. They did it. They got a lot of guff for it. But they were saying, we are not a political organization. They said, send the gold, we send the gold, off to Germany it went, right? So Greek. that's what they did with the Greeks. They The, the Greek heads of whatever, the guys in power, um, sent all the Greeks assets to the, the European banks. So speaking of uh, authorities,
0: what how does this change when you get to bailing out the state and local governments? Like the, they're notoriously oh, bad awful. capital allocators.
1: Wow, oh, that's an awful problem, because um, it's always do it for the children, right? Metaphor, do it for the children. Well, this is do it for the, the the pensioners. The the problem I have with that is is that I I hate the fact that we're bailing out states that acted so recklessly and irresponsibly for so many years, and so my brain kind of cramps. Over the the moral hazard problem there because because uh, if there was a way I could get to the people who were reckless again off the bridge by their ankles off they go right Mussolini time but there's no way to get to them so it's it's that debt has the name it's called odious debt odious debt is debt that was brought on by uh, by an authority in which it was so odious that so it was done usually it's a head of some sort of government head. That it is considered invalid, right? So that the states have a pile of this odious debt, and and the problem is who? How do we make the people whole? Now the problem is again, places like California, they got fire firemen who were getting two hundred thousand a year pensions. I, I I don't feel like I should have to make them whole, right? I don't like that. And making them whole, I'm paying a ton of taxes in New York state. I do not need to pay, you know, by proxy, Illinois or, or California state taxes too, to bail them out. And so I, I don't, I don't have a good solution there. We screwed up badly there. And I just don't, I, it's, it's one of these, like you have stage four cancer, what do you do? And the answer is you die. Yeah. So what happens
0: in that scenario, right? Because I think that that is part of, of the, uh, the analysis is if you let an Illinois, if you let a California just go bankrupt, Right, you just say, "Look, you, you screwed up. You took risk, uh, and now it's time to pay the piper." What happens in that scenario?
1: But who's the you that screwed up? Right, that that gets back. So, so you know, there's so many people in Illinois who themselves are guilty of nothing. So they screwed up by electing idiots. Well, we've all done that. So I, I just don't. I don't have a good answer to that. And at the same time, I find it so repugnant to also have to bail them. And so. Uh, and so, I, no, I don't have a good answer. I don't mind dissolving a company, right? I don't mind saying shareholders, oh, you own those shares, you know. you The guys who, who thought Jack Welch was God at GE, they eventually ate it. They eventually got what they deserved because they were, they were ignoring the data that was showing that Welch was massaging his earnings quarter after quarter for decades. And and they didn't they they just that that's the risk of being a shareholder, right? It's like owning you know Philip Morris and being shocked when you find out that they get sued for, for for causing cancer, right? Now I made a fortune on Philip Morris, betting that they wouldn't hurt him, but um,
0: never mind. So- if the Fed is going to just print and print and print and they're going to divert the money to everyone from the airlines to the States, to you and I may get bailed out and not even have an excuse for why we got bailed out. God, I um, wish I would get bailed out for something. Does the, in the does, bail does the national debt matter anymore?
1: Like, is it even debt if they'll never pay it back? Well, this gets us back to your, your conversation with Colin. Um, uh, I have come to the conclusion people don't understand inflation. I do believe so. When people uh, call, I, I, I would love to have had a threesome with you guys. I know it sounds weird, but I would have. Because um, there's things I thought I, I would like to have brought up to him, and he might even watch this and then we'll, he can call or something. But uh, um, uh, there. The the national debt will continue to grow, as he said, and people's debts grow with GDP. And so he's kind of nonchalant about that. And no way am I going to criticize Colin because he he I think he's really smart. But uh, but there but the debts are growing relative to something they should track. So normalized to GDP, normalized to various things, they're growing right, and that just doesn't work and dollar values who cares but in 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 something where the denominator should erase the uh the, the debasement of the currency part of the problem um then 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 when you're growing your debt you know as a percentage of your gdp over many many years you, you are asking for trouble and um and then the there's the the what we used to call pollyannas um, polys where they're short, shorthand um, who say, well, yeah, but we're the reserve currency. I'm going, for now, right? You don't get to keep reserve currency status if you act like idiots. So uh, at some point, demographics are going to kill us. We're gonna, the boomers are all going to be demanding money. The you know Millennials can't buy the houses the boomers want to liquidate. There's, there's, there's a ca- catastrophic mess coming. We were on this the other night on Twitter, right? The average McMansion not only is way over designed for a family, right? Some like 3.8 people per household in a McMansion. But, but they're made like crap. They're not solid. I lived in a farmhouse. That was solid. And, um, and I happen to own one of these things that's not made very well, even though it's made out of supposedly good materials. But, but, but the cost of keeping it up so I could, in theory, hand my house over to my kids. They couldn't afford to keep it because they couldn't afford my taxes or 25k a year in New York. And I think of housing's cheap. If this house was in, this house was in San Diego, it would be a 30 million dollar house. I mean it's just an extraordinary house. Um, And, and, and I'm replacing windows that are 30 years old and skylights that are 30 years old and roofs and stuff. And, and, and it's, you know, you, it costs a lot of money to own a big house. And, and, and so the millennials, the, the the next generation doesn't have that kind of money. There are people who do, but the bell curve is not looking very good. There's an awful lot of people who are having trouble really getting their careers going and, and, um, employers are not under pressure to pay up big bucks, you know? So, you know, if you're a surgeon, you're fine. If you're a, you know, if you're a wall street, you're probably fine. Um, Yeah. So I don't think the next generation can buy out the previous generation. That's the key.
0: So let's talk a little bit about the Federal Reserve in terms of uh, they're taking all kinds of drastic actions. Uh, as you said earlier, they've pumped stock prices back up um, and uh, and you don't think that that rally will last, but just how do you think about the actions they've taken and should they have done something differently uh, or do they have another option, even though we don't like what they've done?
1: Um. You know, there's a million metaphors out there now, some of which were one point were original. Uh, The Fed's actions have not been particularly good, in my opinion, since Greenspan, uh, since Greenspan started. So, you know, for Greenspan to bail out the 87 crash, in in retrospect, I think looks kind of stupid. Like that crash should have been a sort of a, yeah, wake up. You, you can't just pump markets. And then, and then, and, 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 you know, did he actually do anything that would save it besides some psychological ploy? Probably not. Um, and, and he pretended to be, you know, uh, highly conservative, but every time there was a crisis, he jumped in. Um, I don't criticize him for the LTCM bailout bailout because it wasn't him. He, he got the players to get, and said, "You guys got to write some checks." I again, the friend of Goldman. I said, "What's going to stop you guys from screwing up again?" And he said, "Nothing." And uh, so Greenspan uh, reached a point where he started to believe his own press agent. He got very narcissistic. He uh, he he really did start to believe he was God. And so uh, uh, so he went out on a high, and he engineered it. And we had a lot of room because we. We came from an uh, interest rates of 16% down. He got to ride that wave. He got to ride the greatest bull market bonds in, in the 20th century. And and that makes him look real good. So then Bernanke takes over and Bernanke got handed a loser. And uh, and he's an academic, so he had all these theoretical approaches. Um, to his credit, he, he went further outside the box and I think anyone could possibly go outside the box. Uh, I don't think Bernanke's public presentations of what happened in the depression are correct. I don't know whether whether he doesn't understand as I, as I understand it, or whether he just is willing to lie. Um, I think it must be the latter, but he blames, he blames Fed actions in the 30s that caused the depression. And in my opinion, it was very clearly Fed mistakes in the 20s that caused the depression. It might've been Fed action in the 30s that failed to save the day. But all you need to do, you want to know how, you want to see the boom-bust cycle, the best boom-bust cycle you ever see. Boot up a plot of the Dow from 1900 to 1940. And what you'll see is you'll see the boom-bust cycle. It goes up and then it comes down and then it recovers. You can draw a line right through the boom and the bust and it's this beautiful sort of slow methodical dependence. And and, uh, I got to get my phone to stop ringing. Uh, It's one of my um, buddies. Um, and, and so Bernanke claims was the thirties. It was the twenties. There was all sorts of, they, they lowered, they lowered reserve requirements. They lowered interest rates. They, they were trying, one of the claims is they're trying to get gold to shove back to England after world war one and stuff like that. But they, they blew a gigantic bubble and it wasn't just an equity bubble. It was a, it was a credit bubble. It was a consumer credit bubble. So uh so the, the 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 depression was a beautiful example of a of a purging of of the excesses of the 20s, the roaring twenties. Um so Green Bernanke professes not to understand that, in my opinion. Um and same with Friedman for that matter. I these guys I, I think they swill their own Kool-Aid, they drink their own piss. Um and um Volker is a hero, but I don't view him as so altruistic. I think Volcker recognized what the system needed. So so all these guys are in charge of making sure the banks are fine, right? That's it, that's it. The banks hold all the money, they make all the money, they create all the money, it, they run the world. There's, there's no alternative model that makes sense to me, right? You can have presidents of countries, they don't care, they will pick the president if they have to, right? As, as, as who was it said that? Ah, uh, Dudley last year said that if we have to, we worry about who's president. Um, but so Volcker recognized that what the system needed was a purge. So when Volcker hiked up the interest rates to, 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 to put a lid on inflation expectations, um, and I've had central bankers tell me that that caused inflation, and I've been trying to wrap my brain around that one. Um, but then what happened is he started to bring them back down again, and, and, and he, he started, apparently sat the big bankers down and said, you guys got to behave yourself. We're out of control here. And the bankers didn't listen to him, and so he jammed them back up again. And, and, and so he had to show the banking system that he was dead serious. And that seemed to break the fever. So then, Volcker set the stage for Greenspan to have a party. So then you go past. Let me jump back to Bernanke, and, and he gets uh, credit for saving the world. Um, he saved the world from a raging inferno that was the creation of the Fed, in my opinion. So at some point, it's like giving him credit for stop beating his wife. I, I, I don't. It's you know the arsonist, fireman, fighter. You know firefighter combo. Um, it, the, the crack whore who keeps getting crack. And so at some point you have to purge the system. Volcker recognized. He was the last one to recognize that. And ever since since then, we've had Fed chairs who who were, uh, who were basically saying not on my watch, just not on my watch. So Yellen sat there treading water, best I can tell. She didn't do squat. Um, you know, she started hiking rates from what zero, um, And so she was just following Bernanke's cue. I don't think she knew anything. Um, Long comes Powell, who looked like maybe he gets it. And then all of a sudden, you know, the markets drop 18% or something, and 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 Powell, you know, establish the Powell put. it was also, you know, it was trouble in the leverage loan market. So they were actually more worried about that. But the, the bottom line is that they're never willing to let someone projectile vomit. They're just never willing to let this and say, sorry, guys, you screwed the pooch. The CEO screwed the pooch. Now we got to live with it. They they And therefore, now we have bigger and bigger problems. So I blame them. And the fact that there's an even bigger problem, COVID was unanticipatable. But we'd be a lot better off if we didn't go into it with the world's biggest, historically biggest corporate credit bubble of all time. And so if you look at the bailouts, buried in there, that $6 trillion is a lot of money to deal with corporate credit. And if there wasn't a corporate credit bubble, that wouldn't have to exist. Well, who's holding all the corporate credit, right? It's the pensioneers. That's the problem, right? but also what to, so what does that do? So, what it does it gives people a false sense of wealth so if uh if if you perceive you're rich, and I don't really want to go here, but let's say you've got a gazillion dollars worth of bitcoin, it alters your thinking so so I'm sure you own a lot of bitcoin. There's no way you don't own a lot of bitcoin. Um, the perception of wealth alters your thinking if Bitcoin is legit. Um, it's a legitimate altering of your thinking. If Bitcoin turns out to be what its detractors think it is, then, then you will have made personal decisions that were monstrously bad, probably. Now, once you get a bunch of money, it's really hard to not drop your guard. It's really hard to not say, well, you know, I can afford that boat now. I can afford a bigger house now. And and so the boomers are all being handed these inflated assets now. And They're saying, you know, at one point they thought they'd never retire. Now they're saying, you know, now I can afford to retire. Well, watch, you retire, they're going to throw a toaster oven in the pool. You are going to die. And so, so, so it's, the, it's the false read that everyone's being given by the perception that the corporate debt problem isn't a problem. It is a problem. And, and you can have a global debt problem, it is a problem. And if you wanna know how to create a global debt problem, let's, let's do a Gedanken experiment. Let's say every country they get together at Davos, they say, you know what? We just should give everyone free healthcare. Just everyone, just everyone. By the way, we should promise all the retirements and everything. They'll walk out of there, everyone will perceive they're stinking rich now, and they will have done nothing to improve our ability to create wealth. Not one shred of what they just decided increases our ability to create wealth. And therefore, that's a global debt problem.
0: Yeah, you mentioned earlier this, uh, this idea that the global reserve currency uh, only gets to be the global reserve currency if you're not an idiot about it, basically. Right. Um, <laughs> You also are a big proponent of gold, precious metals. You've done very well in those in the past. Uh, and then you mentioned Bitcoin. How do you see these three things uh, kind of colliding and how does this play out moving forward? Like, do you see the dollar as a global reserve currency? Does gold have a place as a global currency uh, or store of wealth? Uh, and then what do you think about Bitcoin and all of that?
1: Um, I don't think gold's ever going away. Uh, it's been around for 5,000 years. I, I, there, there's 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 memes about gold that I don't buy, and there's memes about gold that I do, and I think the 5,000-year history is a real one, right? So I don't think, if we ever get to the point where gold <clears throat> is perceived as not worth anything, I'm buying much, much more. Um, but I, it, it never will get there. And in fact, I think central bankers value it, but they don't want us to value it. They want us to value their currencies. But, but when, you know, when Greenspan was asked, why don't you sell your gold then by Ron Paul, actually, um, he said, no. And so, so everyone knows gold is like this bedrock that you do not want to pull out from underneath. And that's why, you know, when Venezuela whale or something goes down, the first thing we do is we, we, we send you know, we send airplanes in there to pick up the gold and take it back to Europe again or the United States. Um, the uh, <clears throat> whether it's good to own or not's a separate question because if if twenty years from now I can buy less with an ounce of gold than I can buy now, then it was probably not a very good thing to have. Um, but it it will I don't think it'll go to zero. However, uh, Bitcoin is a is a great experiment. Um, I'm not a believer in it but i'm at some level i'm rooting for you guys i figure bitcoin goes nuts gold will too so you and i can you know buy entire apartment complexes together and start a uh, a new venture capital system here yeah. um so i uh, i i have no trouble imagining that bitcoin goes completely down the tubes uh, that's and i've never been able to convince myself that it was that that was not one of the risks um I also think that, that, that it could survive and do well. Um, there's varying opinions about how, what it has to become to survive and thrive. And I, I've gotten different opinions from different people. Uh, if it has to become a real currency, it's gotta settle down, right? You can't wake up and find groceries cost 10% more today because of Bitcoin. And that's why, by the way, why I don't consider gold money, or should I say a currency? Um, I, I don't like getting into the gold bug discussion about gold being real money because I go, you know, if gold tanks, things cost more, right? And you say, if the dollar tanks, I go, yeah, but it doesn't act that fast. So if I, if I wanted to know that something was going to cost the same six months from now, I, I would hold the dollar, not gold. And I would not hold Bitcoin either. And, uh, and so I think it has to settle down. So I think uh, Bitcoin at some point has got to flush the speculators out. So it's got to become boring, um, and it has to survive uh, sovereign states going at it. And I know you've heard this a million times. I know your listeners are. You're you've got crypto in your name, your company, right? Uh, this it's a it's a subsidiary of Morgan Creek, or are you just yep. part of Morgan Creek? Yes,
0: yeah, it's it's, a, a subsidiary.
1: Yeah. Right. That's a mouthful. Um, did you, were you into Bitcoin and you tied up with USCO, or, or were you with USCO and and you sort of spun off a Bitcoin subsidiary?
0: The, uh, the former. Okay.
1: We're doing a a bunch of mining and
0: and the general thought process. so, So here's a question for you, uh, on this. So Gary Cohen, right. Who, uh, is somewhat controversial in, in finance oh, okay. versus crypto. <laughs> uh, but, uh, Very uh,
1: controversial. So, I mean think about that.
0: Yeah, so, so he's got a view um, that uh, a cryptocurrency is likely to become a major global currency, but it won't be Bitcoin. Jim Bianco, a cryptocurrency will be the next global reserve currency. It won't be Bitcoin.
1: Yeah, so are, they, a, guys, are they saying that it will be a sovereign crypto? So
0: that's part of the discussion, right? Is uh, if you ask Jim, uh, I don't know what he would actually say. Does he think it'll be I mean, backed by a, a state?
1: That's not a crypto, though.
0: Okay, so right? if you had to pick in the future, is the next global reserve currency backed by a state, whether it's digital or not, or do not you think? Fascinating question. Or do you buy into the argument that there can be separation of state and money and the next global reserve currency will just be a separation, whether it's Bitcoin or something else?
1: Well, I think the separation of, of, of currency and sovereigns will be over the dead bodies of a lot of sovereign leaders and, and the bankers. And, the, and since I just made the case before that the guys who make the money and hold the money run the world, that you're asking, are they going to lose control of the world? And that's, so you're up against some pretty tough hombres. And my biggest concern about Bitcoin would be is that in a world that, that appears to be getting increasingly oppressive within the Democrat democratic societies, right? So we've all looked at, oh, it's a democracy. And next thing you know, you look at me, you go, I'm not sensing the democracy that I used to. You know, you look at the 2016 election, you go, Bert, you know, Hillary didn't really beat Bernie. You know, she kind of just mowed his ass down. And then you look at the Russia collusion, you go, God, they were trying to take Trump out at the kneecaps. And So you, you get a sense that, that the democracy is struggling going a little bit here, right? And that we're not we're not getting to vote for things as much as we think. Um, it is hard for me to picture that in that world that if you outlaw crypto, that the average person will say, "Screw you, I'm still using it." And if you don't get the average person, it becomes a it becomes a sort of an off off Broadway currency, and and then it might have a role, but it certainly isn't. That's not your home run. That's not your home run.
0: Yeah. So I agree with that. The one caveat to it is, let's say the U.S., right? If you kind of go through the game theory, the U.S. says, you know what? We're going to ban uh, ownership of Bitcoin. So if you're a U.S. citizen and you hold this, you're in breach of the law and we're going to throw you in jail. We're going to fine you. We're going to confiscate it. We're going to do whatever. Does that open an opportunity for Russia, China, and other superpowers to say, wait a second, we want to get off that U.S. dollar system. It's super expensive. There's tons of control that the U.S. has. If they are going to ban ownership of this, we should actually adopt this together as kind of a rest of the world. So you know,
1: that's an interesting model. I, I gotta say, I hadn't thought about that. But the problem is, they don't want to give up the, the sovereign control of it either. So it gets back to: would that be a crypto? And then, you, of course, you get the uh, you get the real nightmare scenario of Mark Zuckerberg running, you know, Libra or what was it, Libra? Libra. The other problem with with the cryptos right now, there's, what, 5,000 of them? It reminds me of the car dealerships, nowhere near the numbers, but the car dealerships in the 20s, there were some like 250 of them or 230 of them or something like that. Most were going to die, right? And so the question is, how do you know, in the dot-coms, right? How do you know which dot-com was going to die? My friend at Goldman, he was the founder of, of, of Goldman Software Group. Now, that's, that's foundation level, right? That's really amazing. And he was there when Microsoft was taken public and all these. And, and I asked him, I said, was Microsoft always an obvious winner? He said, no, 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 not even close. He said there were a number of occasions where you could easily imagine going to zero. And so it was by no means a lock. It's really easy to see a company as a lock after the
0: fact. I'm going to give you a framework that uh, I use to think about all the different cryptos. Again, no promise that this is accurate, but it's just what I've kind right. of weighed into. But it's the idea that when we look at companies, let's say in the dot com, we always think about revenue, technology, kind of your moat, you know, all of those different things. It's very much a uh, what did you build type uh, defense in order to be a survivor. Money's a little different. and Actually, what I think is money is a belief system, right? That's why people believe gold has value. They believe dollar has value. And so in some weird world, I've convinced myself that we get one shot at the separation of state and money. If it doesn't work with Bitcoin, people basically will never believe in the second, third, fourth, fifth. This is like
1: if you're going to shoot at the king, you better kill him.
0: <laughs> <laughs> to, to some degree, right? Because ultimately, what you get is, you know, it's kind of like if you're in Venezuela, right? And all of a sudden, your currency fails, and the government shows up and goes, "Oh, just kidding. That one didn't work." But like, here's our next one.
1: Right. Like, uh, <laughs> I'm good. Right? We'll go with the dollar instead, right?
0: Yeah. So, so I don't know. Look, it, it, it's, uh, it's fascinating. Um, I probably shouldn't say who it is, but, but somebody in the uh, financial media who's very well known said to me, uh, it's the one asset that he could bring 10 of the smartest people in finance he knows into a room, ask them what they thought, walk out. When he comes back, five will be on one side of the room, five will be the other. And they'll literally think the other five are complete idiots. Right. Right, where I would say they're all probably idiots. So, <laughs> uh, so I want to talk a little bit about politics, real quick. You mentioned uh, Trump and, and all that kind of stuff. What is your uh, general uh, outlook right now in terms of uh, Biden v. Trump uh, coming up in November?
1: I don't think that's what the pairing will be. I think Biden will be taken out. Who do you think replaces him? Cuomo. I think that's important now. I think all the data points to that. So, so when when if you looked at Republican primaries over the last number of elections, the, uh, the the putative or presumed nominee, you could pick them out in the primaries. And what I noticed is like when Romney was was nominated, all these guys were on stage. And now these are all carefully orchestrated, and all their handlers say no no unfair to this. They're watching this is like a face-off in lacrosse, right? How do you keep it from getting dirty? And um, and at the same time, in the, Romney was in the middle. And that tells you the f- first hit. Secondly, his suit was slightly different color. And I'm going, there's no way that they let one of the guys have a different color suit. But right there in the middle, went black, white, white, have blue, right there in the middle. And I go, holy crap. They're drawing your eye right to Romney. And when Bush got nominated, I mean, it wasn't even a choice right? And then I saw it again with Jeb. And, and, and what happened with Jeb, though, is, is that no one saw Trump coming. And Jeb showed an unbelievable inability to handle Trump. So no one saw the glass jaw. It was going to be a Clinton-Bush president run, right? It was really straightforward. And so, um, so, so we're not getting to pick them. I'm not sure I can remember what your question was. Trump, Trump v Cuomo. Yeah. It's, so so what what are you seeing now? Well, first of all, Biden is not in sight. Trump's. I would say the the COVID problem has been his biggest challenge, because uh, because spontaneous utterances don't work well at all. Um, he's a fighter. He's a brawler. He's a bully. And this doesn't lend itself to it. And so I say "Hail, it poorly. Then he started to look like he got his legs on the ground for a while. And next thing you know, you know, the media's still able to turn him into an idiot again with, you know, Lysol in the veins and stuff like that. And and uh, and I think we're gonna find that some of the stuff he said early on is gonna look pretty intelligent that he got massacred on, you know, like Ram or something, you know, and and him that the media's killing him on taking hydrochloroquine and stuff like that. And I'm going, you know, we might find that's the one. So I I don't think there's a way of knowing. But um, what we're watching is Biden, Biden should have been beating the tar out of him. There's no chance that if Hillary was running against Trump that she wouldn't be on every Sunday talk show and her campaign man, manager on every talk show and her handlers on every talk show. And they would be going to them day and day and CNN would be all over it. And there is not a sign of Biden. He is, you know, breakfast at Bernie's. He's, he's sitting propped up like a corpse with his sunglasses on, right? And they don't, he's not even out there defending his candidacy. And for all I know, he's not lost his marbles, although it sure looks like he has. So I got to figure they're hatching a plan to get them out of there. It could involve bringing, what was it, Tara Reid in. It could involve, could involve for all we know, the Democrats were releasing all the Biden garble videos, right? And at some point, they'll do something like, I don't even understand it. We'll call it a brokered convention. I'll pretend like I know what that is. And, and they'll, they'll be a, a recruit Cuomo because they're not going to Bernie. What are they going to go, Kamala Harris? right? They're going to go after Elizabeth Warren. They're nowhere in sight. So there's no evidence of anyone but Cuomo. And he's on every day. And New York could be, you know, a killing field. He'd be on every day. And so I think it's Cuomo. And he just babbles coherently. And it doesn't freak me because I don't want Bernie as president. I hated Hillary with a passion. I Obama was fine. I didn't care about Obama. You know, I don't know why people hated Obama. I, I understand why I don't like his politics, but that's separate. I, the guy I thought was very impressive in his own way. And, um, and, uh, and, and Cuomo, I, I look, he's kind of old school. He's got skeletons in the closet. He was involved, various things having to do, you'd call it graft, but oh my God, no one's ever done that before. And, uh, and you could imagine a Trump-Cuomo battle being a pretty fair octagon fight, right? Do when, who do you think wins that well it will depend on where where it goes from here i mean trump trump's stock can go up and down like bitcoin right and uh, and and so Trump could totally shoot himself in the foot uh if if this whole thing rallies then trump trump i think would win and if 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 he could easily blow it and cuomo wins um I wouldn't be freaked by a cuomo president that wouldn't bother me at all
0: i I feel like uh he is a candidate. Exactly what you're talking about. The other side uh, isn't completely scared of him, and therefore says, uh, "Hey, I may not agree with the politics. Hey, I may not think that he's the you know the best candidate, but I would be okay with it. It's less kind of um, pushback." The one thing I keep going back to, though, is it, it just feels like the political landscape has changed. And, and the one, you know, it, it just really happened again recently where Trump is willing to do things that other people don't understand yet. Right. So when he's literally posting the the memes and, and the videos, the doctored video of him as the president and in Independence Day right? And he's saying, you know, the invaders are coming, but I will save you or, you know, whatever the hell the thing is. And it's his face superimposed. He's just willing to go to a level where, you know, Bloomberg tried to do this, but Bloomberg basically was paying people to, you know, put pictures on Instagram. It's not
1: authentic. He was awful yeah um, it, it reminded bloomberg being brought up reminded me the republicans trying to sell various candidates hoping that one of them would get lags so every week we'd find out some candidate was doing really great and they'd be gone within a week um so yeah, so i think trump is um is so capricious uh, there's a great article or interview i can't remember what it was where someone who was maybe it was a Bannon interview where he talked about when he lined up the Clinton rape victims right before the presidential, uh, debate. And I thought that was just genius. I'm thinking, holy crap, that is like, you know, you might as well take Fredo and shoot him out in the boat, right? That's serious stuff. Um, I, by the way, uh, I, I had a bigger effect on the presidential. I've, I try to influence presidential campaigns. It's really funny. So I was on Ron Paul's homepage as an endorser. That didn't seem to play out as well as I would have hoped. Um, and, and that was in 08. And then, uh, and then uh, Juanita Broderick shows up on Twitter. And she, uh, she says something like, uh, uh, Hillary... Uh, uh, Bill, you know you raped me, and Hillary, you know you tried to destroy me. And and a bunch of people said, oh, this is just a troll, this is not her. And some, some media guy said, I made a few phone calls, that's her. So I taught her how to pin a tweet. And she pinned that tweet, and it went bananas, right? So I got Screen grabs, someone who doesn't believe me, I can show you the screen grabs. She said, thanks, Dave, I did it, right? I, I use that in my annual survey where I show that. I said, this, this is how you influence an election. You teach Wanita Broader, how kind of to pin tweets, right? And, uh, and uh, uh, I, I'm going to predict a future president. You want one? You want one for a future 30 years from now. Who? Savante Mirak. Who's the, that? The, the the mayor of Ithaca. Really so Merrick was the youngest mayor in the country. He was something like 26 years old. He's funny, he's articulate, he's very Obama, he's light-skinned African American. The only reason I say that is because you still got a bunch of bubba's out there who don't want to vote for real black guys, right? It's, it's as appalling as that seems, you know that's true. Um and he's, our, he's, he's Cornell educated. When he was a kid, there was a period when he and his mother and his family were homeless. He has the story. He's, I, I've had conversations with him. I'm impressed by the guy. And um, I asked him, has, have the national politicians shown any real interest yet? And he says, no, I'm not sure. I believe it. I think that might be a can answer. He was on Meet the Press. He was on CNBC the other day. And so I, I think this guy is, he's so much better than the Democratic candidates we're seeing. I'd put him up now instead of these clowns, right? Anyone can beat Beto. I'd take out Beto. Um, but uh, but uh, so this guy's going to be good. And, and, I, and so I said that on Twitter. I, I said this guy, someone said, what's he? mayor during spring break or something and i said something very favorable and i got followed by a woman named i think her name was leslie merrick and i'm going that's got to be mom <laughs> Buying favors buying favors uh, 30 years from now savante merrick you know mark your calendars he's gonna he's gonna get he's gonna at least get to congress
0: it's gonna i sense. uh I always say that the person I could see uh, running and winning uh, who would be the wild card is the rock because uh, he's got three. (laughs) Well, here's, he's got three things. Ready? If we get into a world where it's literally a popularity contest, he's the most recognized actor in the world. Two, he's got the physical stature. There's tons of studies that show just, you know, if you're six, six and literally got muscles to your ears, right? You just look like you should be the leader. Uh, And then three is, uh, he's just enough intelligent and just enough charismatic, where you can imagine, you know, him going up against, let's say, somebody like a Trump who, who's a bully. He's standing up there, and Trump, you know, kind of comes at him, and he literally goes ha ha ha, and puts his hand on his shoulder and goes, "Shut your candy ass up!" Right? Just, just kind of.
1: Right. <laughs>
0: Just very much can can diffuse those situations, which actually, you know, if you read like a Scott Adams book about, uh, you know, how he looked at Trump, like that's part of Trump. Oh, Scott Adams'
1: analyses of Trump are phenomenal, aren't they? you know yeah. he, he he tears it right down to the studs when he uh, analyzes Trump and it, I think it drives Trump haters crazy because he does a wonderful job. I, uh, Scott Adams is a, is amazing. Like he gets he can get pretty wackadoodle. I mean he he can really go outside the box, but um, his analysis of Trump and how 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 good he is at, at I think he, he I think he said he was a good convincer. Or, or say he used some word like that, and uh and he, he describes uses English language to his to describe it. Most people think he can't speak English, and they don't realize
0: they're getting duped. He he, he uses uh, weapons-grade persuasion, I think is the term. Weapons-grade
1: persuasion. That's exactly right. Yeah. And so yeah, Adams Adams predicted Trump way in advance. I saw Trump coming, so I watched him in a. I wrote an analysis of the election that worked out really well, in part because I I paid, I gave Trump more credit early on than most people would. So he wasn't just a novelty. So I started watching and, you know, I take all these notes and shit and keep track of links. And so when when he finally won, I was was sort of poised. I go, oh, I know why he won now. And mostly they were mistakes made by Hillary. Mostly they were mistakes. She, 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 there are a couple of fatal, fatal mistakes she made. That, you know. They seem, at some level trivial, but I don't think they were. And so uh, But yeah, I, it was fun watching that election, I got to confess. I, I'm not a big Trump fan. I'm Trump-tolerant. But I, I love the disruption. I love the fact that he went against two parties simultaneously in one. My my, uh, my whole
0: takeaway from the last really five years, right, including the, the election running up to it and him as president is uh, he has done more positive damage to politics than we probably understand right now, meaning that he basically walked in, threw a grenade in the room and walked out and said, I don't care which party it hits, right? I, I'm basically going to just disrupt this whole thing. And it will change yeah. the way that uh, campaigns are run, that politicians, you know, think about their uh, communication strategies, all that stuff.
1: The yeah, and Lewandowski fo- described, described when he finally realized what Trump was made of. He, 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 Trump made one of his first big apparent blunders. And Lewandowski starts talking to him, saying, well, we're going to do this and this and this to repair this. And Trump said, screw that. And Lewandowski, that's when I realized that he was not your normal candidate. Yeah. And, and look, part of it is, you know, the, the thing that you have to be
0: uh, intellectually honest about, right, is the guy says dumb stuff all the time. He shoots himself in the foot every day. And it, it's almost like he's got thicker skin. Right
1: than everybody a else. Narcissist. Yeah, he's, he's the thickest-skinned narcissist I've ever seen. What is he? I mean, I mean, I'm going. He's a narcissist, but he doesn't care. <laughs> what? What is that? Right. And uh, and uh, and then here's the here's the shock though. So the shock was is that Trump sent this fantastic warning shot across the bow of the two parties. To, to straighten up. And the first example we got, the first evidence we got is the Democrats and they just completely screwed the pooch. They needed, you know, all they had to do was find another Obama and they couldn't come close to that. Right. I thought Warren was going to get it. I thought they were going to sort of leave her in the shadows and keep her from getting bruised up and knocked out and stuff. And then sort of have her do a sort of a rally, like a Jimmy Carter thing. and. And and then she just she started looking shrill and Clinton-esque, and 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 it just wasn't selling. It just was. By the way, I used to chat with Elizabeth Warren late at night, and it was so wicked. One day I was supporting her on Twitter, and the the Washington bureau chief of the Guardian says, "Can we chat?" And I said, "Sure." And he calls me. He says, "I'm writing an article about." Elizabeth Warren and what it is that appeals to people. I've noticed that you've been a supporter. So I, so I told him the story, but I said, I'm also a supporter of Ron Paul. And it blew a certain, He wrote an article in The Guardian about my support for Ron Paul and Elizabeth Warren. That is such a wad of bipolarity. You cannot, you cannot, you know, That's holding two ideas that are in conflict in the same head. I told him, I said, I think they're both honest. I'm not sure that's true now, but uh, at the time I thought she was. I thought she was very sincere. And that's better than everyone else.
0: So, speaking of honesty, you mentioned uh, Hillary Clinton and. I listened to your podcast with uh with Marty Bent which was uh fantastic and you gave your uh, your Jeff Epstein uh theory. What is the uh what's the latest uh thought process on Jeffrey Epstein and, and that entire situation?
1: Well, it really hasn't changed because it all went away, which is a classic case. the the, the, the classic picture was this guy from same as Burge or something on Twitter. I don't even know who he is, but he's got a popular Twitter feed. And he showed a picture of the 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 uh, the Ark and Raiders of the Lost Ark being put in the warehouse, right? The hopelessly lost Ark. And he says, he says, we won't be needing this anymore. <laughs> and it was the Epstein case, and that's exactly what happened. So I'm still reasonably comfortable with the idea that he's not dead. I think the, uh, the analysis of the corpse coming out of the building was very good. I think, I think the, the, the profiles of the guy coming out didn't match, didn't match uh, Epstein at all. The, the nose shape, the, the ear shape, I think that was pretty good. And on top of that, I mean, there's I think all the suicide switch or something where you say, look, get me out of here alive or I'm releasing the info. And And he had more dirt on the global elite than anyone, and so the question is, you know, why would he not have used it? so I think if you find Jislain Maxwell, who I call Jizz for short, for obvious reasons, and um, if, you find, if you find her, you might find him. But we can't find her either, because of course we're not looking. and you know we'll, we'll find o, O.J's wife's killer before we find which is Maxwell and, and Epstein. But I don't think he's dead. I think he's in witness protection. He's probably had some nose jobs and shit done. So, where, where do you think he is? Oh, it's a big world. I don't know. You know, I, I just don't know.
0: Where is she? Well, that's my point. Is, it, is this like a remote island? No one can uh, find him? Or is this hidden in plain sight? Plain sight.
1: Well, you know, when, when the most famous powerful people in the world will all lose their asses if he gets discovered, he's not going to get discovered right so all you have to do is make him you would know, have to hack up his face a bit and make it different but uh but you could do that you, know, you could you know look what they do to the hollywood stars who get face jobs they, they, they're on mickey rourke go look at mickey rourke and tell me you'd recognize him in a lineup right or or, or caitlin jenner right there we go yeah <coughs> probably a chick.
0: I mean that's a pretty wild theory I, I think that uh
1: I'm just throwing stuff out to explain it put it this item. item
0: there there's more than a zero percent probability that that could be true
1: oh I, I think it's i I'm actually rather comfortable with the idea um and they' they're never you know there's none of the other guilty parties have ever been challenged right and and and, and so the, the Epstein, I, I'm going to read one of the Epstein books. I was actually the other day thinking about finding one. And what you don't want to do is get one that's a whitewash. So I got to find the right one. I, can, I, um, I think uh, Whitney Webbs is coming out, but, but she's kind of, I really like her, but she's, there's kind of a skitsy quality. And so she, she tends to throw the puzzle pieces on the table and, then, and doesn't assemble them all. And I kind of like the fact that she can see the puzzle pieces, but do, doesn't know how they fit together. But um, yeah, I think the Epstein connectivity was so profound, and I have no doubt that he had huge connections with intelligence. That 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 story is so easily made, and so he's he's in a safe house or something or a safe island or whatever. And and you know whatever happened to the Panama Papers, right? Twenty five thousand accounts in the Caymans. That lasted what three days, maybe. These things go away. What? Let's free John Corzine, right? Where's he? We knew he was a crook.
0: Speaking of uh, these, uh, shining light maybe on the darkness of the world. uh, (laughs) Zero Hedge uh, went out on the top, man. Right before all the right at the top. I mean, the top. I I continue to to periodically tweet. Don't forget, Zero Hedge would be having a, a literally a field day right now in the last eight weeks.
1: And by the way, their tweets on the COVID are getting are getting these massive warnings on Twitter when someone else posts a link. Someone told me all their links. No, they're not. They're the, they're the COVID links. So it's uh, it's it's some people in authority who want to make sure that alternative views of the COVID virus are not getting out there. These are not wacky ideas. Some of them are remarkably benign and somehow you put covid and zero hedge together on the same the same web page and it, it gets a it gets a warning that says this could have malware and, all, and, it, and it has none of that. Zero hedge is way better than the mainstream press, way better. You got a filter, right? They have they, they have some pretty wacky stuff there but there's also a lot of stuff that's showing up there that's i think coming from powerful people who are, you know, ghostwriting the stories and yeah. So I, I you know, I think mean, I I rarely see zero heads look dead wrong. Sometimes they seem like they got it a little off, but rarely dead wrong.
0: I um I, I continue to think that this uh this whole idea of uh censoring ideas that don't agree with the institutions is uh not only one the dumbest idea I've ever heard, but two is a direct attack on science. It's a direct attack on the truth. Uh, simply because uh, in just the COVID crisis, we've seen the institutions been wrong over and over and over again. And if you can't question what those people are saying, or you can't question other types of uh, thought processes, you you basically make no progress.
1: Well, and so let's take it all the way to the deep state. Um, it, It appears as though you you can make the, you can go very deep in the COVID crisis to and find theories that you can't refute. And there's a there's a gob of them, right? And so um something having to do with China, you know, whether it's a bioweapon. To me, whether it's a bioweapon is not that interesting because uh because we all make bioweapons, apparently, and one got out and we blew it. And and I, I think I think there, there's some potentially deep information about what we knew and when we knew it. Or, uh, or a funny meme the other day was talking about Biden. They said, what did he know and when did he forget it? Um, and so I, I, there's a lot of stuff in the COVID that don't, that don't add up. And, and they're just, the math, the math doesn't add up. Why was New York a disaster? Why, why was LA not? Um, and and, and it, it's just not obvious to me. Um, I wouldn't be shocked if the numbers were being way overcounted, way under counted. I heard Mexico's way under counting. Um, as you mentioned, hospitals have a tremendous incentive to designate a, a COVID a patient as a COVID patient. So here's a story for this is true story. This happened to me. My wife, uh, this is what we've done to the system. This is a great example. Actually, I'm gonna write about this one. My wife about uh Six years? No, no, no. Seven or eight years ago, uh, one night uh, di- slipped and did a header in the kitchen, and I woke up to her, you know, started giving a yell out, and I put her to bed. And the next day, uh, the next day, she slept all day. And you go, well, that's kind of a warning. But my wife has tremendous health problems, massive health problems, and so it, it, it was within the noise. The next day she calls, she says, I really ought to go get an x-ray. And so it turns out we take, I take her to the hospital. And I said, should I call an ambulance? She said, no, just, let's just drive to the hospital. And uh, we get there, and it turns out she had a double fracture in her neck. And partway there I'm going, boy, she is awfully vibration sensitive. This is a problem. So it's not a long drive, but I'm going, this is creepy. And so uh, – and they missed it at first. And, and the doc – when she he took the brace off and said, "There's no break. You're fine." And she sat up and she put her hand, held her head like with her hand like that. And he put the brace back and I came back and said, "You had a double break." Turns out it was a 40% fatality probability. The break she had. Now, really weird tangentially, my mother did a header, broke her neck and died. So they would have been really weird. They would have been stringing me up. Um, So in any event, about two weeks ago, she was gardening and she did <laughs> this. Is a, Funny play on words. She did a face plant. Um, (laughs) And and we didn't think much about it besides the fact that her face, we're picking a piece of mulch out of her face. Um, But then the next day she was talking about how much it hurt and I was watching her. And then at dinner, she was doing this. I go, fuck, we're taking you to the hospital tonight. And, and it seemed much less traumatic. I still put her in a car Right, you could say, when are you gonna learn this? We go to the hospital. I can't go in. She's terrible at talking about her health problems because she's had so she's had 59 surgeries. She doesn't like to tell anyone that number. And I want to go in because I want to tell them how complicated her neck is. She's got two fusions, she's got a heel on the, the break that's not that didn't work well. And then they won't let me in. I pick her up three hours later after getting a call, say, come get your wife. And all she got was that it was negative. They did a CT scan negative. She never talked to a doctor. They literally took her and did a CT somewhere out there in, the, in, in possibly India where they're reading later night CT scans. Some guy said nothing there. No way to really transmit this information to the guy. And she gets a negative, like it's a pregnancy test. And the next day I call my GP and I said, this is just appalling. He got me an orthopedic, we got her in, he fiddled with her, jiggled with her, and and she did not have a break. But that's what we've done to our healthcare system. Now here's what's gonna happen to our healthcare system that's worse. Private equity has been buying up hospitals. Private equity, of course, we know, does one of several things. One is they they try to make a lot of money, which means it's probably not going to be in our best interest. Second of all, they will strip mine the damn thing and load it up with debt and screw the hell out of thing, pay themselves big things, and then sell off the shell. And then because it's a shell, and and I blame the Fed for that. And you go, how do you blame the Fed for private equity selling shells of companies? The answer is because there's so much stupid money out there. When money, when capital's precious. People don't buy shells of companies. They do their due diligence. Now there's dumb money out there. They buy, yeah, yeah, we'll buy the hospital. We're buying up three a day, right? And they'll sell off the shells of the hospitals. And then, and now, now what's going on? Well, the hospitals are all going bankrupt because of this COVID thing. So the PE guys are coming up and buying them on fire sale prices. Then what we're going to goddamn do is if they don't turn them into a shell and bankrupt them, they're going to milk profits and we're going to get national health care out of this to pay the PE guys. Tell me that's not a nightmare.
0: It's going to happen.
1: It's going to happen. And I don't know who I'm going to string up and hang off the goddamn bridge for that one, but I'm going to find someone. If I get liver cancer, there is a list of people who are in a world of pain.
0: Your real job, your uh, day job, is education. Uh, how does that change coming
1: out of all this? Oh, so the question is what's going on with colleges. Um, I have been on a bit of a crusade to say we should be graduating half as many people from colleges. We are currently graduating. Uh, there are majors that should be minors There are minors that should be courses and there are courses that should be history. Notice the pun there. Um, You cannot pay a quarter of a million dollars in major in sociology. I I just, if if this podcast gets to our sociology chair, there's gonna be a bitch session. I don't care, you cannot. It is a non-extinguishable debt, a quarter of a million dollars to major in sociology. And so, um, and, and at the same time, the cost of college is just soaring, although maybe not going forward. Um, and the question is why? What I can tell you is my department, which is chemistry, runs leaner and meaner than when I got here. Less staff per capita, less support per capita. And we're, we're pretty close to the top. And so I got to figure that's general. And So the question is, where is all the money going? And I think it's a lot of um, unfunded mandates. So when you're accepting federal dollars, you have to do all sorts of stuff which includes having deans of diversity, includes having accounting things and all sorts of, you know, all sorts of stuff. And so colleges are just so much more complicated than they used to be. And meanwhile, you know, the, the cost of dorms and stuff are going up because the kids, there's, a, there's a, 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 an arms race going on. So if, if one school's building fancy dorms, that's where all the freshmen are going to go. Uh, There's an arms race that's going to appear in medical school soon. NYU just just declared free tuition. No tuition for all med students from here on out last year. No tuition. Now, imagine you're sitting at Columbia as a first-year med student, and all of a sudden the headline says NYU has no tuition as of this day, and you're going, I turned down NYU. I can't believe I turned down NYU. So what's the best med school in the country right now? NYU. Because it's the only place you go free. And so that's going to keep happening. Then what's going to happen to that? Well, what's going to happen to that? Then society's going to say, okay, now that you're not paying a fortune, you get to work cheaper now. You get, we get to send you places. We get to send you to you know, Sheboygan where we need more doctors. Right? Somehow this could be the beginning of a more socialized medical care, curiously enough. So I don't know, I don't know where academia is going, but we're, we're way too expensive. Um, you should not be studying English literature with a 500 English SAT. And they're out there. Um, my son went to a four year college to a two year college in the Adirondacks that offered four majors. They were all very pragmatic. It was a great program. Um, he went to a four-year college after that to get a, finish a four-year degree. Not a famous place, but uh, he studied event management, and now he works for the CFR. Um, so so I think college has to be much more pragmatic, and the problem with that is, is there's a lot of majors and stuff out there that aren't pragmatic. Do you
0: think that the way the education is delivered changes, right? That this is kind oh,
1: of – Oh, technically speaking?
0: Well, just there's a lot of kids sitting at home right now saying, uh, you know, hey, I'm calling into my Cornell class uh, and I'm paying all this money. One, should I even be in college if uh, if I'm not going in person? And then two is, um, you know, does the cost change if the experience changes to some
1: degree? Well, the experience definitely changes. Um, right now we've got a problem where things like lab courses are a farce, right? We pretend to teach and they pretend to learn, that's it. Um, We're laboring over what to do with lab courses if we can't open up. I I just don't think you can keep playing the game that a lab course doesn't require going in the lab. Uh, We may de-emphasize laboratory, right? Who says freshman chemists have to go in the lab, right? You could just learn chemistry. Uh, The labs, I remember stinking pretty badly anyway, so, you know, who cares? I'm not sure a big loss there. I do think there's a real social upheaval when people finally figure out that you can do something online. And then the question is, what is the role of elite? Um, I'm told Harvard Law School now, it takes about four hours to do the work. If someone's from Harvard Law School disagrees, send me an email. I don't care. Um, I'm glad to hear it. But I had a student who went there. He said it takes about four hours to do the work. That's not the paper chase, which was a famous movie book. Years ago, where it was just cutthroat and killer, and now now it it's, it seems like a finishing school. If that's true, if that's true, so you know, business schools are really about just getting the sheepskin and being able to say you have an MBA. I, that seems so wasteful. I don't think you should have to take what is it, seven years to get a law degree. This uh, Frank Abignali, who was the the famous imposter, he passed the bar without going to college. Um, I think a four year degree that includes a, a major in law that then you take the bar would be fine. And, but the law schools right now are cash cows, right? That, that's where the business school is a cash cow. Um, you know, medical schools are cash cows because they have because um, they have clinical treatment facilities, so they're hospitals and med schools. Uh, med school used to be in Ithaca, but we didn't have the bodies to work with. So to to run a med school, you have to have a lot of indigent people. Yeah. The, The thing
0: that I think is really interesting is, um, there's two things at play, right? So one is this COVID thing kind of exposed a lot of shams in society. One of them immediately becomes, Hey, do I have to go in the classroom or can I just watch online? If I can watch online, how does that change my expectation? Uh, I do think there's a lot of value to the social experience, right? Which I think, you know, some people still for sure uh, desire and and seek out. Uh, But the other piece of it is uh, the business of the school, right? And so, you know, one of the things I've said is like, look, a lot of these schools, they've got massive asset management firms, right? I mean, look, these endowments are billions and billions of dollars. And part of what I think people are asking um, is just, does any of that change, right? Does the way that they allocate capital change? Does the way they invest change? Does the way that the federal government interacts with the schools who have large endowments change? Like, like what is the impact to the actual business of the school? Uh, and I don't think people know yet, right? Like I, I think. Well, so
1: here's the problem though. And that is, if, if you can find a way that that, that huge wealth is distorting the system, then you have a case. But, um, for example, I'm sitting in a, a building called Olin Hall, created by the Olin family, Olin Chemical. Next door is Baker Lab, which is George Fisher Baker, who is a J.P. Morgan peer, to the extent they exist. Across the hall, across the street is a building built by Seth Klarman. Next door is a building built by uh, John D. Rockefeller. Uh, Bill Gates is down the street. Um, um, Duffield uh, of, of PeopleSoft is at the end of the road. You know, it just they're everywhere. These are all buildings that were built with money that was not tuition money. Now, some of the money actually is tuition money because you often don't get the full donation. In fact, shockingly smaller amounts now. But, um, but in any case, every dollar that one of those rich bastards gives us, like Cindy Weil gave us Weil Hall. Um, is money that a kid doesn't have to pay for, and the state doesn't have to pay for, and the taxpayers don't have to pay for. So it's it's like you know the Hughes Foundation. So the question is 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 that efficient? Are we squandering money because of that? It's possible, but you know you know if you look at a school like MIT right now, they're they're doing amazing things. Stanford's doing some amazing things. Cornell's doing amazing things. Different areas. Um and 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 so it's not obvious to me that the big endowments are, 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 are to be criticized because harvard for example um, you get so much aid to go there harvard i heard rumor um said they were going to shut down in the fall because the amount of money it costs to teach the undergrads from their cash flow it's cheaper for them not to teach undergrads, and and so so it's a subsidy for them, um. And and so I, I think you know we could get rid of a lot of colleges, replace them with tech schools, various you know, I the, the guy who was fixing the elevator a year ago I was talking to, him, he was still a, a, an apprentice, but he said after five years he gets real pay. He said how much? He said over a hundred right? Should you become an elevator repair guy or major in sociology, right? That's the question. Uh,
0: I think a lot of people, the argument of, hey, there's a big separation uh, at the higher education level of like the elite schools have right. a very material serious impact and, and kind of the economics there makes sense. And, and uh, you can measure uh, what goes in and what comes out, but there's just too many schools, right? Which is a whole other. Well,
1: argument. if a school can't develop an endowment, one could make the argument that, that they're putting out students who are not extinguishing the cost of the school, right? If a school's product is, is educated people, if, if they're impoverished, you know, is it, was it really worth it? I know there's humanists who are gonna go, but you have to have humanities. Well, Harvard has humanities. Cornell has humanities. They are a, at some level kind of a social program that you can afford to have if you are a financially powerful school. Right In the olden days, schools just weren't expensive, and so you could actually... And and by the way, someone who came to Cornell 100 years ago and majored in philosophy and stuff like that, they came from wealthy families. They came from families where you could afford to do that. And so it's a very complicated mathematics to understand colleges, but I, I do... We're not wallowing in money. People think the endowment, Harvard, I sat with the, 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 the assistant provost of Harvard in the middle of the financial crisis, sitting in my office, and he really got pretty honest with me there. He says, he says we don't know how we're going to make payroll. And I know Cornell had that problem. And what it is, what people don't understand about the endowments is it's not a big, Harvard's endowment is not a big 40 billion pot of money it's not a 40 billion pile of, of, of equities. It's this exceedingly complex cordoned off piles of things, some of which are a liquid asset. They, they might own uh, Timberland in Siberia, right? You can't just liquidate that stuff. But a lot of it's like, for example, my salary is paid by the endowment. And so they can't just take the money that they would have paid me. So I, I, it, it defers the cost of me. Um, And, 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 and there's all sorts of activities on campus that are paid by the endowment, you know, the the lacrosse coaches and endowed coach, you know, things like that. And, and, and that pays for that all pays for things that we either could not afford or, um, or, or would have to use tuition dollars to get.
0: Yeah, your your point also about um, kind of the trade schools. Uh, I've got a buddy who uh, he started to roll up uh, a bunch of uh, electrician uh, businesses, and right. his idea basically was, look, uh, that's a skill that's not going to get automated away by robotics or anything, uh, and actually, it's a, a undesirable. Uh, skill for most people. So there's not a lot of people who wake up every day and say, I want to be an electrician. Uh, it's a very technical skill. Uh, and so actually his belief is that the supply of electricians will uh, dwindle, but the demand will stay the same or actually go up mm-hmm. as, as we build more. Uh, and therefore you will actually kind of have an expanding margin business. Um, and so he's been rolling these things up and, and you look at it and you're like, look, part of the problem is the, the trade schools, right? And, and the lack of them. Uh, And there's just not that many people with those hard technical skills that are needed uh, because everyone either wants to go, uh, you know, kind of be educated in other things or go be a software engineer now, right?
1: That's kind of the other thing is imagine you take a smart guy and you send him off to one of these trade schools, and in the process, you teach him accounting and business and things like that. But meanwhile, they're also learning the plumbing and the heating and the stuff like that you take a Harvard smart kid and you put him in a trade school and that guy's going to come out and, and do stuff. And so one of the really difficult things is they talk about the sort of the financial benefits of a Harvard degree. What's very difficult to tease apart, they try, they don't, they're not oblivious to this. What's hard to tease apart is what happens if you take a Harvard smart kid who didn't go to Harvard. Right. And, and what, they would have probably gone off and done some pretty cool stuff. And so, you know, and we know, you know, Gates didn't finish Harvard, right? And so, um, so, so they can go change the world. And one of the problems that when, when, you, when you graduate with a lot of debt is, are, are you going to change the world or are you going to go get a job in a cubicle to pay off your, your student loans? And how many of those guys, like if Gates had come from a poor family, let's say, and he went to Harvard, he built up student debt. Uh, how many of those guys would you have to divert from starting the next Microsoft or the next PeopleSoft or whatever, and instead send them to a cubicle, to maybe become CEO of a company we couldn't give a damn about? Um, how many of those diversions does it take to have a measurable impact on our economy? And the answer is a trivial number, right? And so I, I think that uh, I think I think hobbling a generation with debt is a disaster. I think giving free college is a disaster because I can also see kids squandering opportunity. Mm-hmm. So I think there's got to be blood on the page. I don't know how much, I don't know how to do it. I think the Democrats have it, have the idea, right? And the method wrong. I think, uh, <clears throat> I think we got to learn how to make stuff, right? We, we gotta, we gotta, we gotta, we gotta, I think what Trump had dead right, has had right the whole way, is to to sort of bring manufacturing back to the US, to 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 quit outsourcing, because when you pay other people to make the stuff, the cash flows that direction. We just can't keep doing that. Yeah, someone like Kyle Bass, he would say that too. He hates Trump, but he would say, that's correct. So
0: i uh i uh did a conversation with Kyle and uh he didn't hold back at all for sure
1: <laughs> no he 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 does not hold back he's been a, actually a nice resource too because when I ask him a question he doesn't he doesn't hold back.
0: <laughs> yeah, for sure. That, I really enjoyed the conversation.
1: It, it was fantastic. Uh, I got four. About what was going on in China and the COVID? Is that what you talked about? Or was it earlier than that? This was earlier than
0: that. And uh, and he, he was still, uh, this is around the Hong Kong protest and, and all of that. He's been pretty bearish on China. Yeah. Uh, I've got four questions for you to finish up. Two of them came from uh, the audience that I thought were really good. And then two I ask everybody. Uh, the first one from the audience was, if you were in your early 20s, what would you invest your time and money in right now?
1: I saw this on Twitter. I went through all the answers on Twitter. Whoever asked that question was a good one. Um, first and foremost, I tell young guys to not worry about the shit that I worry about. That it it it, it, it going down that rabbit hole is a, it's in, in your twenties is not the time to do it. It's it's leave it to the old guys to bitch about the government. Um, and and there's also a question: What do you invest in? And, and it's a little more ambiguous to me because what I try to do is I say, look, open up a 60-40. The, no, one, no one has the cajones to balance a portfolio by selling the winners and buying the losers. So what I tell them to do is I said look at the end of each year, look at how lopsided it has gotten, and switch your allocation over. And, and, and so you don't sell anything. You just move your if, – if bonds are light, go with bonds, right? And um, – and and then uh, and then the problem is, is one time I was in the middle of a podcast. I said, you know, someone who can do this, you know, send it to me. What would happen if you started buying the Nikkei in 1989? If you started. Now, if you're a 55-year-old businessman and you're in the Nikkei in 89, you went to your grave without getting even, right? You were in a world of trouble. And that's what the modern day investors don't seem to see. I, I think that's where Hussman's dead, right? We are at so much risk right now. But what happens if you bought the Nikkei starting in 1989, you just bought it all the way down and back up. It took you 22 years to break even. That's a long time. So I'm a little torn with the idea of just just start averaging it and don't worry about it. I would say, do you find a good financial advisor and and they're rare because they all think they're good. Um, I've got some sights on a few for when, when I finally turn out to be right, you know, the blind nut finds the squirrel occasionally. Um, and again, Eric cinnamon was going to get, is going to get some of my money. Um, there's a group called Manning and the pier that's going to get some more. Um, but um, I really would rather not handle my own money, but I reached a point where I said, I can't turn this over to the, to the street. I can't do it
0: when people ask me about uh, evaluating financial advisors, I tell them, look, the first question that I would ask a financial advisor, just show me your personal returns for the last five years. Right? Right. What, are you, what are you personally doing? Because that's going to tell me everything I need to know because you're not going to look after my money any better than you're looking after your
1: own. Well, I wouldn't have said to give Yusko some money, for example. I think he's been really good. Um, I want to see the returns of someone through the boom because uh, I called Harvard's problem because uh, – during the boom, Harvard was clearly getting hedge fund returns. And I said, when this thing goes to hell, they're going to get hedge fund returns too. And so I want to see a person who during the wild and crazy euphorias, uh, underachieved. I, 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 I don't, I just don't think there's many traders out there and, you know, Taleb would say, look, in a Gaussian curve of 10,000 traders, there's gotta be some winners. So don't be deceived fooled by randomness um and uh and so I, i i like to see i like to see guys who have muted returns which is why madoff was so criminal because madoff played into precisely the kind of thinking that you should be you should have you say i just want someone that gives me solid steady returns and that's what he gave that's why Madoff. Yeah, it was a get-rich scheme. Yeah, you know, by me, these guys, they they got what they deserve. But Madoff's clients just wanted steady returns, and that's exactly what he gave them.
0: I mean, look, it's Howard Marks, right? It's it's basic. Howard
1: Marks has is, is a, got a head on his shoulders, yeah. And, and 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 I forget exactly
0: the quote, but basically his whole theory is: look, I never want to be uh, the best return right in the year because that means I took so much risk that if I was wrong, I would have been in the bottom of the returns right? I kind of want to just be above average year after year after year, and I'll end up in the top 5% of all uh, asset managers over a long period of time.
1: If you said you got to take all your money and do something with it, I'd probably just buy Berkshire. Even today after it hasn't been- Yeah, I'll tell you why. Because I got to figure that they're so loaded down with goddamn companies that are stable companies. I've never really looked at them carefully, but um, they they do call out the herd occasionally. They dumped a bunch of the airlines, for example. Uh, Buffett could die, and as we talked kind of about earlier, I, the companies that he bought still exist. And I got to figure that that even though they had a disastrous attempt to find an heir apparent about five years ago, where the guy committed some fraudulent shit and got fired. Um, I got to figure there's people in the queue there who know how Buffett thinks and knows how to do it. I, I, I think the next bull market, which is going to come after the next bear market, <laughs> um, I, think we're just, I think this rally is so fake. Um, at some point, there will be bargains. And I think that you will have to buy equities that pay you to hold them not pay you because of some promise of the future. I think you want to buy some company, while avoiding dividend traps, pays you dividends. I think you want to be able to say, look, this company, no debt, steady business, 5% dividend, I'll take it.
0: Yeah, it's it's possible for sure. The second question was, uh, what mistakes you've made in your life that taught you the most? Oh, uh, you know,
1: that's, that was another great one. Um, I don't know how to define a mistake, and the the reason is and I said this before. I send everything through a filter, and I've done this for most of my life. Where I say, if this goes very very badly, will I forgive myself? And that keeps me out of Bitcoin, for example. And when people say, oh, just buy a little, I go, well, then it'll just do jack shit for my. Return too, so I, you know, the idea of owning three percent gold as insurance policy. I go, yeah, yeah, buy yourself a five thousand dollar insurance policy. See see how your wife does on that one. Um, So, so I have to go with If I blew this one, will I forgive myself? And and then what happens is, are they mistakes? Right, I'm not sure you called a mistake. So, investing wise, I, I I fought the Fed. And I think it was a legitimate thing to do, but I totally misunderstood the utter insanity that they would inflict upon us. And and so, um, and I'm not going to stop fighting them now because I think they've got us hanging off a precipice, but I I, it's, I paid a price for fighting the Fed. And Tepper tried to tell me, Tepper said, you know, uh, I'm buying what the Fed's buying, but um, Tepper skills I don't have, Druckenmiller has skills I don't have. So if you try to imitate those guys, you're going to be the, 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 the smudge mark. You're going to be the loser. And they go, oh yeah, by the way, we liquidated that. Um, and so what, what are the mistakes I've made? Uh, I really have so few regrets. And I've tried to think about that. I've tried to think about what my life's big disappointment was. And it's so hard to identify one. And it's not that I didn't blow something. I can rewrite history. Um, You know, I played lacrosse in high school and I compared myself to peers on the team. And uh, one Southpaw attackman was clearly better than me. A guy older than that was better than both of us, in my opinion. Um, a defenseman used to beat the shit out of me every day, and and I was a gymnast too. So I was a small lacrosse player and a gymnast. So I just liked gymnastics better, so I went to gymnastics. I grew to six feet. Bad idea. Um, found out later that the that the guy who was the south paw was a three time first team all American in college. The guy who was way better than him never played college ball. So we'll never know what he was, but he was, he would have been a legend. And the, the defenseman played, uh, he was a long snapper for the Cowboys for 12 years. And so I, I i made the mistake of a relative comparison. I said, well, this is not my sport. These guys are clearly, and there was another defenseman I had I had no trouble with. He went to Georgetown and played, right? I, so I, I made a mistake of, using a relative calibration that was wrong, but, but I liked gymnastics better. I liked it better than lacrosse. I wanted to do gymnastics 12 months a year. And so I did it. Um, is that, I can look back and say, I should have trained this. I wish I'd gone to cross-handed putting, you know, I mean, there, there's, these are big life's big disappointments. Um, You've lived a good life. I don't think you can call those uh, disappointments. Yeah, and it's it's a world according to Dave, right? It's it's it, it's such a weird and twisted route, and and when I when I sort of go through a biography, um, I go, God, that's so goddamn entertaining in some way. So I I just I don't have remorse. My mother was a serious alcoholic, was, like passed out cold noon alcoholic, quitter gin alcoholic, right? I don't think it hurt me. I don't think it hurt my brother. We became very independent. And, and, and my dad held everything together well. And so, it, you know, I, I, I guess I'm probably a little more sensitive to alcohol consumption, but I, I don't know. I, you know, if you had asked my brother and I when we were in high school, you know, what would happen if your dad died, right? I think we both would say we'd be fine. We, 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 he was financially stable, we knew there'd be money. We also knew we didn't need my mother. I mean, she, she had her, we, we loved her. She, she was a victim of this st- horror disease. Um, and she, all, she always loved us. It, there was never a doubt about that. So there was just no scarring. Um, I once told someone I had to be scarred. And so I read a book, Adult Children of Alcoholics. And I was like 1.5 for 21 on the checklist. The checklist, you know, can't finish a task, you know, a lot of failures, and you know, I'm going, no, no, no. And the, the ones I came out 1.5 was like overachieving things. You're know, like, okay, but maybe I'm just an overachiever, right? Maybe I just like to achieve that. That does happen, you know, loons, right? Um, so I don't control that. And I don't, it doesn't, I don't think about having a tough childhood or anything. I, I don't, it just, you know, in some sense, the independence was great. Mom's passed out. We can go get shit-faced ourselves, right? We can go get stoned. We can go, you know, do things. We can go, you know, get in trouble. I was hitchhiking at 12. Um, my mother would say, you know, I, when she had a license, I'd say, can I have a ride? She'd say, you got a thumb, don't you? We'd hitchhike. And and those were great days. Those were phenomenal days. and You know, we'd play sports every day after school and it was just i have such fond memories of childhood and college was phenomenal i worked my ass off but um and uh you know i've do, done this job for 41 years without losing federal support that's, that's any chemist will tell you that that you know that's, that's 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 like madonna right you know that's like still cutting albums at 60 and uh and uh now i i haven't been able to think of a big mistake that 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 i really had to learn from
0: if the only thing you could think of is that you fought the fed you're in good company <laughs> 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 what uh what's the most important book that
1: you've ever read oh jesus uh, the most important book well, since I'm an atheist, I can't say the Bible. The um, most important book I've ever read, uh, there's kind of a genre that I like. I like the neuropsych, I, I like history. Um, it's the most important book. I finished one recently. I'm, I'm getting a little putty headed in my old age. I finished one. I just finished a book that I'm gonna to have to read again by Peter Bogosian, who's the guy who faked all the, the 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 uh the uh the uh grievance studies papers, you know, the guy who committed the fraud and submitted them and gendered dogs at dog parks and stuff like that. And I chat with him occasionally. And uh he wrote a book about how to have difficult conversations, and it could be a profoundly important book. I give it a plug. And he talks about all the ways we bomb conversations and, and, you know, words that are, uh, going into it, not knowing what, what the goal is in the conversation. I got to read it again, but that could be one of the more important ones. Um, the book that uh, Charlie Munger repre- uh, uh, recommended it was from the genre of the, uh, of neuropsych, the book influence. So it's a 1996 book, I think. And, and Charlie, um, Said that's the most important book, and and I, I, I that grouping is good. Learning about biases and cognition and and how how the brain works. One um, well, of the most entertaining was uh, Unbroken about Louis Zamperini. That was a phenomenal book. Uh, Ghost Soldiers was a phenomenal book about saving. I, I do all nonfiction. The fiction I've read makes me projectile vomit. So i all oh, you got to read the Kyle Runner it just doesn't work for me, so I want to get to the end of a book and feel smarter. Maybe it's to uh so that when I'm having a conversation with someone, I can molest them with my wonderfulness or something. I don't know you know it's who knows what it is, but i i, I don't like I don't, I don't like any the end of a book and finding out that someone killed someone, right? I'm trying to get through u s history through the biographies of presidents and uh, and and uh, some of them are a little tricky to find good books on. But uh, uh, audiobooks, how's that? I'm going to answer that question saying audiobooks.
0: Yeah. I, I, uh, I find it very difficult to read these days because I'm so attracted to audiobooks. And,
1: oh, love uh, them. Oh, my God. I, mean,
0: I, I just feel like I'm cramming uh, information in my head. Do you right? commute? Do you commute? Uh, or? I do not, but I listen to them when, uh, when I go run or work out.
1: Right. Um yeah, I'll tell you a mistake I made. After being in great shape up to about forty-five, I quit working out, so I'm in wretched shape. And that's that arguably a big mistake. But I haven't learned from it yet. <laughs> I'm still in wretched shape. I got I used to work out like 24 hours a week and, and uh and then I had some health problems that got in my way and then I, I just I couldn't rally back and now it's just like so.
0: Last question for you, then you get to ask me a question. Believer in aliens or not?
1: You mean anywhere or having visited the Earth? Let's do both. Uh, statistically, somewhere certainly. Um, a guy named Manfred Eigen, who's a Nobel Prize-winning physicist, uh, did some quick math and and said, if you look at just the odds, that there is just overwhelming odds are out there. I I don't think they can get here. I, I think that. Uh, you know, maybe oh, – the other thing, this is what uh, – someone made this case. Was it a Rogan interview or something? By the – oh, here's what my like, – I want to get on Rogan. No offense. I want to get on Rogan. Um, we can try to help. What's that? We'll try to help. Well, I, I got a connection with him on Twitter, but I, so far I'm sitting at the phone. He's not calling. Did,
0: um, did you see the news uh, today? He, uh, he signed an exclusive licensing deal with Spotify. So, uh, later this year, um, his content previously has not been available on Spotify. So now it's going to be available, but later this year, he's going to go exclusive to Spotify. It's like
1: Howard Stern move.
0: Yes. So my guess is, uh, Howard was actually the, the, uh, contract numbers that I used. So they got to be paying him a hundred million a year right? Rogan's got to be bigger than Howard Stern at this point. And uh, Howard Stern, I mean, back in 2004, signed a five-year, $500 million contract, and he's still doing it,
1: right? so so fascinating. Rogan's so fascinating. So uh, one thing I wouldn't want to do is spar Rogan. (laughs) I, I used to have a good back kick but Rogan, I look and I go, oh, he would break me in half with his back. That's how I'm gonna get him to bring you on. I'm gonna say, listen, Dave said that uh, he probably promised- he can kick, kick your ass. ass. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I, he, he, he's got a scary. And when I was told after the fact, when I noticed it, I said, holy crap. Someone said, yeah, it, he's known for it. And I go, okay, that that makes sense because it it sure as hell looks lethal. I mean, he, he would just snap you like a pretzel with that back kick. And I love back kicks. Oh my god, when I was doing taekwondo, just back kick was it. You just you can end a match fast with a back kick. That guy goes down. Um, what was the question you asked? I, I aliens. You said uh, oh, aliens, right? Yeah, um, I don't think they can get here. Some some podcast or something said what. It's possible they're here. They said, Imagine you're an ant and you walk, and maybe this is Scott Adams or something. Imagine you're an ant and you walk across a highway. You would have no idea that, that that was a sign of intelligent life because you're not qualified. You just don't have the brains to understand. He said that the highways could be all around us, right? And, and we just can't see them because we're just a, the idea that we've hit. Hit the limit of intelligence is certainly false. It it might be true, but it's only because we we blew something badly. Um, And and so, but but my current thinking would be: I don't think they can get here. I think the universe has separated us enough that uh, that uh, that I don't think. And they, they sure as hell, I don't think they're here now. I, 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 don't, I don't think the UFOs are. Here's the question I have is why are we seeing, and I bet you've noticed this, why are we seeing all these reports coming out of official sources of UFOs? Have you spotted that?
0: Yes. So th- there's two things that wow. are very interesting. One is uh, all the UFO things that recently came out, those have been leaked before. Now they're just being confirmed. They're right? coming
1: out of the Air Force.
0: Yeah, so it, it's a little weird that you would choose now to confirm that stuff. Um, but okay, that's fine. Uh, the second thing that I think is very interesting is uh, the whole idea of a space force. I feel like that's kind of been flying under the radar. Like we've literally set up a, a government.
1: Don't we already have it? I mean, I, I I gotta figure we just have it. We're just codifying it somehow, right?
0: Well, they they uh, look. I, I saw a picture of the person who's supposed to lead it, right? That they got out there. He's you know some general or, or whatever you know a person. And so this whole idea of like, wait a minute, if, if we don't have any idea or any knowledge or any information on anything being you know out in space, why the hell are
1: we creating a space force? Right. Well, so you know you could ask why did we go to the moon. And the answer to that question is so that we could develop what it took to bomb the hell out of the Russians and, and sell it to the American people. So I think, I, I think a space force is to give some flair to something that they want to spend a lot of money on and want to have a good cover for. I think the idea of uh, the release of the, the UFOs from official sources Tells me they're trying to distract us for something. I, I I I don't know what you could imagine. I'm a I'm kind of a fourth turning guy, and you could imagine that the the people in power are getting nervous at the the temperament of the average person. Right, the the, the average person's mad. Um, for those who don't know the fourth turning, you know it, it's the idea that you know there's an 80 year cycle broken into roughly four 20 year cycles. And that the fourth turning is the bad one, and that's where bad stuff happens. And then and then when at the end, you have green shoots and things sort of. And, and if you look at the U.S. history, it follows a perfect 80-year cycle. So you go back to the Depression, you go back to the Civil War, you go back to the Revolutionary War. And the one they don't mention in the book, you go back to the Salem Witch Trials. And... And so they wrote the book in 96 and said, if all goes according to plan, the next fourth turning should arrive pretty much on schedule around 2010. And you sit there and go, holy shit. And in it, in the book, they say things weird, weirdly prophetic things where they say, you know, it, the trigger could be anything from a financial crash. And they said a tea party, and I'm going, what did you mean by that, right? A tea party? Yes, we have one, but how did you know that, right? It's like Ras, it's like uh, uh not Rasputin. Who's the guy? Nostradamus. It's like the Nostradamus prediction. And uh, but I think if you say when did the fourth turning appear? If you buy the model, when did it appear? You say, well, it's the financial crisis, right? And I go, no, actually, I think the fourth turning was, or row because of our failure to deal with the financial crisis correctly. So we desperately needed to hang bad guys by their balls. We desperately needed, in every other financial crisis, we rounded up the the rascals, possibly a tiny fraction of them, but enough of them where we could say, look, we've we've cleansed the system and average joke and say, okay, I'm fine, you got the bad guys, now we can move on. And we all came out of it, all the way up to the top of Wall Street, came out of it going, shit, we did nothing. John Corzine, what a great example. That guy should have been hung. And and we got nothing. And and oh, a great book by, um, oh Christ, Jesse Isinger, I think, called, it's about the, Jesse Isinger's book. It's new, pretty new. It's about what was going on. I, I read every crisis book. I thought there's no, I can lip sync, all oh, what a credit default swap is, right? I, that, it's so boring. Isinger talked about what was going on in the Department of Justice and in the regulatory agencies during the crisis. It was a completely refreshingly new view. So I recommend that book. And it's an audio book, by the way. And so it's a great book. And, and what happened was, is that we went at a couple of these guys and failed. Then we, went, we got a couple, and then the, the appeals course just completely overturned. And, and Rakoff, I think, was the judge was pissed off because he said, we spend months and months and months putting this case together. And then some goddamn appeals court spends a couple hours looking at the date and overturns it. And so what happened is the spine of the justice system wasn't helped by Holder being in charge. The spine was just ripped out of it. And so they, they started settling for the, oh, we'll just fine him. And they were happy with that. They don't care if the shareholders pay. But even a nitwit knows that when the shareholders pay, you didn't get the right guys. You got the shareholders. And so I think that we are still very, very much butthurt by the failure to get anybody. And so this crisis has a lot of risk in it. Because now we're really hurting the little guy in a very unusual way. And it still looks like we're bailing out the big guys. And so, so at some point we could have a serious shitstorm—the uh, kind where you you say you didn't see coming, the kind of violence in the street sort of thing. The, the thing that uh, I do think has some
0: credence to it—I uh, do not, you know—and to be clear, I don't think the virus was a response to this. But uh, if you go back five months, six months, there was protest all over the world. Right. And all all of a sudden, everyone get inside. Now, again, I don't think that the virus had any any connection in terms of of doing that. But what I do think is that it's how quick we forget. Literally, you could go down the list of all these places who had this social unrest. And now that we start to get towards a financial crisis in the United States and and globally, I I continue to say that twelve hundred dollars stimulus check. That's a bribe to keep the social unrest at bay.
1: Right. And it's a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of the total money that's been allocated. So uh, if if you see ways that the money's being wasted, send it to me, because I'm trying to collect up all the stupid stuff that they're really doing. I've got a great article about the wasted money from a previous bailout where they laid it out. And they said, you really want to know where the money went? They went bang, 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 bang through it. I want to write that chapter this December. And so... Uh, so I'm trying to collect it. What's interesting is they've been able to hide the kind of really nasty levels of greed in this one. And and you know I think what happened in 0809, by the way, when they bailed out all the banks, and and I get that you had to save the banking system. I do get that, but afterwards then they should have hung the people from the bridge. I think the reason that the guys like Blank fine and all the bankers gave themselves huge bonuses, which was so tasteless. It was so such bad optics. I think they thought the system was doomed. And they were just saying, we're gonna take one more wad and run. Get out of here. And then all of a sudden they look at me go, wait a minute, we still have jobs, there's still money. Holy cow, we didn't even need to do that. Right. So I I think well, it was I but- part of it this time that um
0: is pretty interesting is one. Uh, they almost learned from the last crisis. So you don't see the, um, you know, you you don't see Paulson going in front of uh, a panel of people asking hard questions, right? So you kind of, kind of, none of that has happened. Okay. Let's
1: get into this before we go. What bothers me so much about this crisis is it's providing cover for all the bad behavior. It just, it's, it is breaking my heart. That bad politics are being covered, bad economics are being covered, everything's being covered, I, and and in my I, as you know, I'm willing to go into dark places and ponder stuff. Aristotle said a, an educated man can enter can entertain an idea without endorsing it, and I can endorse him, right. I can endorse the idea that Epstein may not be dead. Um, I can endorse the idea that the Vegas shootings were all screwed up. I wrote about that and. I, I had a fasting lunch with Einhorn's mother and father. There's a connected world for you. And she said that my write-up on the Vegas shootings was so haunting because every shred of it was wrong. So I can endorse weird stuff. Um, I don't know I, I, I don't know if it's possible or not, but could you take a normal sort of a flu-like thing and turn it into a massive storyline to achieve? 'Cause because again, if you know you gotta bail out a corporate debt bubble, you go, okay, let's let's make hay out of this, because we're gonna have to do it. We gotta get people to sign off. So, you know, you let the Japanese hit Pearl Harbor so you can go to war. You let, you know, you sink the Lusitania so you can go to war. This happens all the time. And so um, so I don't really know if if it could be that good. But here's a question I like to ask myself and I like to ask others. Think of big sample sizes that you can name. For which people are not dying. So let's start with Ithaca. Forty thousand people, no dead people, not a dead person. Right? I go, God, you know, for a, a, a profoundly virulent strain of awfulness, no dead people. And then you say, okay, okay, maybe that's Ithaca. The I think it was the NBA or the NFL tested all of their staff, the entire the secretaries, recruiters, everything. Thousands of people from what 26 cities or something, right? This is a pretty interesting sample size 0.7% positive on antibodies. I'm going, how is that possible? The um, here's one I really like this think of all the famous people you know, and they're not, not just famous people, but they're famous positions. So, for example, we don't know all the congressmen, but there's 535 of them, and if one of them dies. That's a headline. 100 senators, 50 governors, right? You go on and on. Heads of state, you know, uh, 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 ambassadors to countries, uh, professional athletes, Hollywood famous star- starlets. There's thousands. Name one who's died. Can you? It's a real interesting problem. Well, I'll give you, if you one. You
0: Google it, you get bullshit. I'll give you one even better. Uh, the recent stat I saw was... Uh, if you compare Florida and New York State, so Florida actually has, I like, guess, like two or three million more people than New York and they're
1: State. They're old guys.
0: And they're old. <laughs> and they're you know, all this stuff. And New York State has many, many more deaths. I forget the exact number. But if you look at the uh, headlines, you would think that Florida, they had the beaches open, you know, they weren't paying attention, they weren't taking it seriously, right? Kind of that whole narrative. But the data is actually showing that Florida has fared better. Than New York. Or Sweden,
1: or Sweden. So I, here's the problem. If we get to the end of this thing and this this is it, so we've declared we're going to open and we crawl our way out, and there is no second wave and there is no killing field, and there is no anything. And by the way, those sample sizes I was talking about bother me because because um, because if you needed to pull off kind of a hoax, and I don't mean to say that it's all a hoax, but rather amplified. It could be one of these things where it's like, well, you know, I don't know anyone, but it must be other people do, you know? And, and, and so it'd be easy to convince someone that, well, you don't know, but, but they're out there. There's 85, 90, whatever thousand who have died from this. Um, We have four nursing homes in town. No one died in there. I I don't know how this can be happening with the storyline that we're getting. And so then the question is, can you go so far as to say that maybe they're amplifying it? So, so there's three levels. One is that there's just human stupidity. So maybe we responded badly under some set of conditions. There's opportunism. So once a hit say, oh boy, now we can get you know cheap loans out of the Fed. And then the worst one is the one where you create the effect. And this could be, for example, um, Uh, get Trump, right? How many people out there, how many authorities are out there are promoting to maintain sheltering because they know it'll hurt Trump in, in November? Now, those people, again, they're on my hit list. Those are people who are so immoral. They don't realize how sociopathic they are. They don't realize that they're throwing, and, and how many people are thinking, well, you know, the good news is we're gonna get Trump if this goes this way, and therefore I'm supporting sheltering. Look, you are a sick, sick person if you want to do that, because we, we are destroying lives as, we're, as you and I, we're gonna be fine, right? If you own Bitcoin, you can buy and sell me. Um, but, but, but these people are suffering badly, and there's a thing called deaths of despair, and supposedly there's a lot of them in any given year and they're deaths that are ultimately tied to poverty, right? Whether it's opioid deaths or things like that. The question is, are they going to spike? And it, the glamorous one is the suicide, right? The guy loses his mm-hmm. business and jumps off a cliff or whatever, but there's just deaths of despair where just your life goes to hell. One minute you're employed, the next minute you're homeless. And, and how do you count them? And but But there are, a- academic papers I hate to use that phrase a- people have studied deaths of despair to try to get their brains around how how serious this problem is we're going to have a lot of that
0: did, did you see the video um, I tweeted it I think yesterday where uh, there was a cop who showed up uh, two cops showed up to a gym in New Jersey so obviously New Jersey still in shelter in place uh, a gym owner basically said look I had enough I- I'm not playing this game anymore I'm opening my gym and uh, he put the word out. A bunch of people had showed up. Uh, there was zero social distancing going on. There was a couple okay. of people who had masks, right? But for the most part, they were violating all the rules. Cop had a mask on and, uh, and he walks in, the, in front of the gym. And you could tell it was kind of some kind of either the gym owner, the police, somebody tipped off somebody because there was a lot of media there, right? And so they're all filming this. And the cop walks into the middle of the whole thing. And, and he says, uh, you know, basically everyone shut up. Uh, everyone gets quiet, and he says, "Listen, I am here to formally tell you that you are violating the executive order to stay sheltered in place. You guys have a nice day, though." And he walks away. Right.
1: Well, so it's not like cops are normal people too, right? And so, yeah, I, I, I think, I think somehow society all of a sudden just said that's it. Part of the thing that reminds them to do that is because they walk in the store and there's the guys working the store, and they're not flopping over. And, and they're not getting hazard pay. And they're not, so, so they go, this guy's working. And why is the store essential? We couldn't find an optometrist. Explain to me why if my glasses are broken, that's not essential. So, so I think it's like, is "This, we're done.
0: Look at the police department. I mean, one of the most interesting stats I didn't see they talked about was at one point, it was like 18 or 19% of the NYPD was calling in sick. Right? And 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 part of it is, look, they've got the vacation time. Some of it's probably just fear of, hey, I'm not going to work and getting, you know, this thing. Yeah, Some exactly. of them actually are sick, right? But you start talking about um, a job where literally your job is to go interact with people, to shake hands, to, you know, do all these things. And yeah, I, I saw, in, I think it was Seattle, a cop basically was sitting in his car in his uniform. Uh, and it sounded like he just had enough. And he pulled out his phone and he recorded something. And he said, look, if you are a police officer... Remember, your job is to protect and serve the people. You cannot you know, violate the Constitution and blah, 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 all this stuff. But it gets put on paid leave, right?
1: <laughs> right, exactly. And, 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 and I think people are now watching that. So I think that was ultimately probably what led to this gigantic sort of paroxysm, to use a Stockman term, um, where society just said we've had enough, and it happened in about a three-day period. It, it was so fast. And I think it could be something like that blonde hairstylist or something. I, I don't know. But, um, but then the questions of let's say we open up and then nothing else happens. Uh, everything I know about herd immunity says if we had to have it, we don't yet have it. And if we already have it, we didn't need to shut down. So there's a real paradoxical problem here. If, 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 and if it reappears, then we're screwed royally. I'll leave
0: you with my biggest fear coming out of all of this, which is you get one shot to educate and train a population to do quarantine the right way. If there is a second virus, not coronavirus, <laughs> second wave, like, like a, a real... The two, five million people, whatever it is, are actually going to die. I believe that it will be nearly impossible to lock down the United States a second time because people will be so anchored on this experience. And that's
1: Uh, my other fear, though, is, is every time there's any kind of thing coming out of China or Africa, we're going to shut everything down. We can't keep doing this. This would be like trying to accrue wealth while bulldozing your house every five years. Right, So we can't keep both. Now, I don't think we'll do this again. So I, I agree with you. When there, if, this is a, if this is a false start, then, 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 the, then the next one we're all going to die from because people aren't going to buy it. I, I've been trying to figure out what the optimum is. So it started way back when where I'm thinking, okay, so, so what I can tell you is if they shut everything down and nothing happens, we have a problem. If they shut everything down and we all die, we have a problem. Somewhere in the middle is the best outcome. I don't know how many dead people we need and how convincing a case we need. Somehow, I think people to be okay are going to have to say, we're okay, but we had to do it. I get it. I've sacrificed. Let's move on, right? It's, it's like when your kid gets killed fighting in World War II. Whereas if your kid gets killed fighting in Vietnam and you're going, you know, it, they're both horrible, but one is one is worse than the other. We somehow need to be able to come to terms with what we have just sacrificed.
0: Well, and look, and, and part of the, the um, really sad part, right, is uh, we'll never know because uh, at the end of the day, if we hadn't done the, the quarantine, the shelter in place, we'll never know what the impact would have been and see, see,
1: I disagree, though, because I think the sheltering puts it off. So I think, remember, there was a mission creep here where the, first they were going to shelter us so that we didn't overwhelm our healthcare system. Then all of a sudden it became clear we overwhelmed almost nothing. You know, the horrible pictures out of New York. My wife's been in New York hospitals. And they're overwhelmed on a good day. And so, so I'm not sure. And on a bad flu, they get overwhelmed. And so, so, so then also it turned into now we're going to shelter just so no one dies. And that's not what we signed off on, right? And, and so, so I do think that if, if sheltering hammered the virus down, we have to have a second wave. I will not be able to come to terms with the idea that we can go, we can hide from it and come out and it's gone. This is, remember the movie 28 Days, a zombie movie? What was amazing about this, they all ran out of energy. It was the most realistic zombie movie. They all ran out of energy, right? You you can't just keep running around forever. The virus can run around forever. And so so I think that if we all come out and it doesn't flare back up, then it's going to be shown to be a a knee-jerk reaction that was totally inappropriate. It's forgivable in the sense that we didn't know but it's going to look like a screw-up.
0: I mean, that's Drunken Miller's uh, whole perspective, right? I think he came out and he said, look, he thinks that uh, in hindsight, again, to your point, with the information we had, it probably was the right decision. But in okay. hindsight, when we get information, people will look back and uh, they'll basically say this is one of the worst public policy decisions that was ever made. Now, again, hindsight bias and, or hindsight is, you know, 2020. Um, but, but hearing him say that of all people, I thought was pretty interesting
1: yeah he's he's so good um if I had to sort of send a message to the future and say Okay, next time, next time, the first thing I would do is I would go very local so i'd say first of all, I'd say the governors have the ultimate say and and and, and even more local than that maybe where 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 there's much more authority for it you're going to say look we're, of course we had students that made it very complicated. Um, but, but but for a town to say, look, we got no cases here. We can keep working. And to have a governor say you can't work, that was insane. Some guy wrote an article to his governor from South Dakota or something. He said, we've had six deaths. And he named their ages. He says it was a doctor. He said they're, you know, 59, 69, 72, da, 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 da. He says, we've lost this many jobs, thousands, tens of thousands. He said, he said you have to open this up. He said, this is an insane calculation you're doing here. And and I've been told that up in Maine, a friend of mine is up in Maine, says that you wouldn't know there was a pandemic up in Maine. So they're kind of doing this. We all live by New York standards. A lot of us we're, 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 were New York City standards. And I think the message there will be no shelter where you have to shelter. I'd stop interstate travel. That would make sense. So to say, look, just stop crossing the borders, right? And- so I'm, I'm going to
0: leave you with one stat before we go, which is, uh, I believe that this is still true. The average death or the average age of people who have died from COVID is higher than the average age of people who die in the United States.
1: Well, here's a weirder stat. The fatality rate of nurses in the United States, which admittedly not are all dealing with COVID, but the ones who are dealing with COVID are all nurses, is tenfold lower than the average, uh, the average fatality rate of the country as a whole. So the nurses have, and here's a stat for you: in a typical year, 800 doctors die of the flu. How many doctors have we been reading about or hearing about on CNN or whatever? How many have died of of this? They'd be headliners, right? They're faces. They'd be heroes. They'd be we'd be we're not hearing about them. They they're there. I've seen them. Not eight hundred. So I I worry that underneath this thing is is politics. Yeah. And not just late appearing, but but appearing earlier than than they should have appeared. You uh Fauci.
0: do what? you trust Fauci? I think that he is, uh, if I had to put a category, you have to put him in a politician's bucket because he is serving as, uh, the mouthpiece or the megaphone for an entire community.
1: Since, since Reagan's first term, he's been, a, he's been a politician since Reagan's first term.
0: So what I will say is, uh, I don't believe that uh, he is like maliciously going up there and saying, uh, I know one thing in my head, but I'm saying something 180 degree difference. But if you're on that podium, you're a politician, right? And, and okay. so there's, there's, there's massaging of the message. There's you know kind of uh, let's highlight this data, not this other data. All that stuff goes on across both aisles. Anyone who gets up on that podium, they're all the same. Right? For the most part. Uh, And and so um, the fact that it is a doctor, uh, I don't think is, uh, you know,
1: absolves you of those sins to some degree. So the question will be, will the politics that inspired us to open up prove to be greater than the politics that were inspiring us to stay sheltered? Which Which was a stronger political force, right? Which was more political? So I, I gotta go back. Uh,
0: I don't wanna say who I think tweeted this very early on um, in case I'm incorrect, but somebody who uh, has got a pretty big following on Twitter and I'll send it to you afterwards if, uh, if it ends up being right. Uh, and I, I, I think I remember him saying when they were starting to lock down China, he said something to the effect of quarantine would never work in the United States because people are too um, kind of uh, religious or, or too much of a zealot towards independent. the American independent. Know, freedom and ideals. And so I think that what ends up prevailing in these situations is what was the default. It's less about, you know, lockdown versus, uh, re- open up. It's much more about the default is always open up and therefore that undercurrent kind of rises. And ultimately look, you know, Egypt, what was the uprising? People needed to eat, right? You know, you kind of get into this game of, um, you know, I, I've said multiple times on Twitter, the number one thing that uh, a governor should have done on day one is said, shut down your businesses. I'm going to suspend taking my salary until you reopen your business. We're all in this together. I won't ask you to do something I won't do. Right. Not, a, not one of the 50 governors did it. Yeah,
1: that would have been a politically good move, especially for Cuomo.
0: I mean, imagine imagine if he had done that on uh, you know, day well, one.
1: People yeah. would have loved him. Yeah. Yeah, so that that's an interest. That's an interesting idea. That and then the other one. CEOs who did stuff like that. There were a couple of CEOs who did some stuff. Like, I can't remember it, but something like that.
0: Yeah. Look, it, it, it's a thing where uh, I believe. Right. And again, this is a hunch. The political uh, or the politicians who end up uh, ascending very quickly, moving forward, are going to be people who have an overlap of skills both in. Um, Influential leadership of people, so no more of the kind of authoritative leadership, uh, but much more. Hey, I'm not going to tell you that you're you're being legally forced to stay inside, but I'm asking you as a responsibility of as an American citizen, save your neighbor by staying inside type stuff. And then two is command of the social platforms, right? Their ability to speak directly to uh, their constituents. Trump, AOC, right? I mean, there's there's people on both sides of the aisle that have that ability. Um, but I do think that that next kind of class of uh, of politicians are going to be very, very uh, talented at it.
1: So what's the silver linings? Uh, I'll start. Uh, it knocked AOC off the news. It knocked climate change out of there for a while. I was getting pretty tired of hearing about that. Um, it knocked a lot of the social justice crap. You know, you're sitting there trying to figure out if your pronouns, right. And, and, uh, and, and, and everyone else is saying, excuse me, I just don't want to die, right? So I, I think there's some silver lining. Any other silver linings that jump out at you? is like, you know, it made us more efficient at, at, at online communication, but I'm not sure that's a silver lining. It might ultimately be kind of a, a numbing effect. So what I, do you think?
0: I would go with, uh, one, much more focus on uh, nationalism, and a lot of people, I think, look at nationalism as binary, uh, it's either nationalism or globalism, but just reminded people that, hey, you can't go help the rest of the world if, at, if you're not taking care of at home, right? Type put, on your, put on your oxygen mask first. Yeah. So, so like, I think that was definitely one lesson out of this. The second is uh, a, a complete revival of this idea of technology and science and, and, and building and just, Hey, wait a second. We were coasting for a while there. We suck, frankly, as a, as a, uh, as a
1: country on many, many levels cause we fell asleep at the wheel. Right. And I think that this is the local, so a lot of local communities kind of pulled their shit together. And realize that, you know, I remember after 9-11, there was a story about a pilot who went on. It was one of the first flights. And the pilot went on, he said, when, when those doors go closed, it's just us. We're going to make sure we get there. And, and it was a, in some sense saying, you know, some terrorists can't can't do damage to us because it's just us. And so, uh, so I think in some sense... Communities have picked up a sense of community, realizing that there's some things that you have to do local. And I'm kind of hoping that there's got to be people who can't get food now. There's got to be tons who can't get food because they were barely getting food before. And and I'm I'm, I'm kind of hoping communities pick up where where churches left off. Right? I've actually I'm the only atheist in history to write about the merits of of religion. Um, but I, I think we've picked up a, a renewed sense of community.
0: I uh, I also believe um, out of 8 09 crisis, there was a complete disdain for Wall Street and the banks. Coming into right. this crisis, there will be a very, very deep disdain for government. I think a lot of people are going to come out of this and they're basically going to point and say, look, the, the virus didn't shut down my business. You did.
1: Right. right?
0: And, right. and uh i think it's going to be people from both sides of the aisles right that uh that say look i vote republican democrat independent you know whatever it is and they're just going to say look at the end of the day you took my livelihood from me
1: right and 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 yeah, some percentage aren't coming big back big deal too that's a big deal
0: yeah so all right where can people find you on uh, on the internet where where can they go read and and listen well, to all of your intelligence
1: brain if someone wants to send me an email they can um my email box is becoming unwieldy but they can um you can find me um the only rational place to find me is is uh at twitter which is a david b column my uh my pin tweet is my annual year in review which somehow seems to have played a role in getting me onto these this on this different plane um that uh that it started out as just a few thoughts to a few friends um garage band blog and uh and now it's gotten pretty big and so uh yeah david b column at twitter and uh and then you know podcasts and stuff right so
0: the the annual letter is uh is fantastic. I highly suggest anyone to go read it well, thank you yeah so
1: listen we will uh we will do I this don't recommend again recommend anyone write it. <laughs> It's it's really like passing a bowling ball through your urethra every year. Yeah.
0: All right, my friend, we will do this again. Okay.